Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. You also raise the uh, the issue that rarely gets talked about is of the differences between uh, Native African-Americans and uh, black immigrants, either from Africa or the West Indies, and how they are often by this caste system rewarded for distancing themselves from African-Americans. Um, one example that I, I, I came across often in covering public education in this country is that uh, it seemed to me from uh, my, my observations that uh, uh, immigrants from the West Indies or Africa were more uh, prone to wanting to have their children go to charter schools versus regular public schools uh, than uh, Native African Americans. I'm wondering uh, how how does this work out in in, in your uh, in your analysis? Well, in a in an artificial graded hierarchy with with the word that ranks human value on the basis of one's proximity to those who are dominant, those who are on top, it's human nature to want to to do whatever you can to survive in that hierarchy. People who arrive new to this country have to figure out how to navigate it. What will what will bear the most fruit? What will benefit them the most? How will they survive in a forbidding society, for, forbidding economy at times? And so, uh, it's very natural for people to want to to do whatever they can to protect their children. But one of the things that happens in a, in in this in a caste system, as it is evidenced in the United States, is that. Um, most every other group, uh, if, if you're coming in from Europe, for example, um, the Eastern and Southern Europeans were encouraged to quickly shed their uh, their originating uh, ethnicity. To to many people, change their names in the early uh, decades of the 20th century in order to assimilate. Uh, they they uh, changed their names. They dropped the accents. They did everything they could to become. Americanized, um, because that was going to be the way that they could blend in with the predominant group. That was what they were being rewarded for blending in with the dominant group, which is human nature for someone to want to do. However, for people who have been of African descent uh, arriving to the United States, that this group alone, it shows you how casteism works, would be encouraged to distance themselves from those who have been uh, assigned to the bottom, which are people who have been descendants of, of enslaved people. They would be encouraged to do this. They were, would be rewarded for separate for separating or creating a distance from themselves. Uh, and 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 the way that society did this is to actually encourage people. They found people could find there are many studies about this that people who are of African descent. But um, not uh, native, not in indigenous people who had been uh, descended from enslavement. They actually uh, were singular in being encouraged to retain their accents, to retain their connections, uh, or to emphasize 
that they were actually from someplace other than uh, from originating from from the United States. So that, that, that this this group alone is an indication of how a caste system can adjust or to, can influence people's behavior in order to survive by uh, by doing what is necessary to uh, win the favor or to be in good favor of, of those who actually have been dominating uh, who are, or the dominant group. And so these are the ways that a caste system can further divide. And at the subtitle of this book, The Origins of Our Discontents is There for a Reason. It indicates how in some ways all of us are like, uh, are like uh, uh, players in a, on a stage. You know, I think about the word caste and the many ways that the word caste is used in, our, in, in, our, in English. And one of them is a caste in a play. And so everyone if we are all characters in a play, you might say, with roles to play, roles to perform. On the play, on the stage, there's someone who's stage left, stage right, someone in the front, someone in the back, and everyone knows they're, where they're supposed to be on the stage. Everyone knows their lines, and if you're very, very invested in it, you know that you know very well about it. You know everyone's role. You know everyone's, you know the entire script. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, October 8, 2020. So I have been told who is writing the script cast. That is the question from Gusty Renegade. Uh, this is the book club, despite all all odds i did not think we were going to be here uh if you had asked me like last friday saturday sunday like anywhere along the continuum of the last week been like oh no i'm having massive computer problems there's no way we will be moving forward with the book club but hey got the computers working enough to get the audio content uploaded moving ahead isabel wilkerson cased our fifth audio installment we're picking up on pillar number six dehumanization uh that was miss wilkerson at the beginning her visit to democracy now from just a few weeks back interestingly that metaphor of a cast she brings it up repeatedly in the book and when talking about this book i never hear who is writing the script generally plays tv programs movies someone is writing this script someone is writing the lines. sometimes they edit the lines and change them around who is responsible for all of this she makes it seem like white people are so passive uh she says it in the writing and when doing interviews that through no fault of their own through through no effort of their own they're just given these roles we're just given these parts we're just assigned these roles the system of white supremacy is not passive white people have to be actively involved in the establishment, the maintenance, the expansion and refinement of this system of domination. That's either true or it's not. Following logic. Anywho, Jane Flippin' Elliot, admitted white supremacist, will be mentioned this week. She will not be mentioned as an admitted racist. It will just reference her blue eyes, brown eyes exercise that is like 70 years old at this point. People can think about why is that even included uh, in this sort of text uh, as well as the whole cowbell situation. Anyway, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. This is Isabel Wilkerson's Cased. The Origins of Our Discontents. 
Audio segment one. Pillar number six, dehumanization and stigma. Dehumanization is a standard component in the manufacture of an out-group against which to pit an in-group, and it is a monumental task. It is a war against truth, against what the eye can see and what the heart could feel, if allowed to do so on its own. To dehumanize another human being is not merely to declare that someone is not human, and it does not happen by accident. It is a process, a programming. It takes energy and reinforcement to deny what is self-evident in another member of one's own species. It is harder to dehumanize a single person standing in front of you, wiping away tears at the loss of a loved one just as you would, or wincing in pain from a fall as you would, laughing at an unexpected double entendre as you might. It is harder to dehumanize a single individual that you have gotten the chance to know, which is why people and groups who seek power and division do not bother with dehumanizing an individual. Better to attach a stigma, a taint of pollution, to an entire group. Dehumanize the group, and you have completed the work of dehumanizing any single person within it. Dehumanize the group, and you have quarantined them from the masses you choose to elevate, and have programmed everyone, even some of the targets of dehumanization, to no longer believe what their eyes can see, to no longer trust their own thoughts. Dehumanization distances not only the out-group from the in-group, but those in the in-group from their own humanity. It makes slaves to groupthink of everyone in the hierarchy. A caste system relies on dehumanization to lock the marginalized outside of the norms of humanity so that any action against them is seen as reasonable. Both Nazi Germany and the United States reduced their outgroups, Jews and African Americans respectively, to an undifferentiated mass of nameless, faceless scapegoats, the shock absorbers of the collective fears and setbacks of each nation. Germany blamed Jews for the loss of World War I, for the shame and economic straits that befell the country after its defeat, and the United States blamed African Americans for many of its social ills. In both cases, individuals were lumped together for sharing a single stigmatizing trait, made indistinct and indistinguishable in preparation for the exploitation and atrocities that would be inflicted upon them. Individuals were no longer individuals. Individuality, after all, is a luxury afforded the dominant caste. Individuality is the first distinction lost to the stigmatized. We are sorrowfully aware of the monstrously swift murder of six million Jews and five million others during the Holocaust. What we may not be as familiar with are the circumstances leading up to that horror and the millions who suffered in the labor camps of the Third Reich, the process of dehumanization before any of those atrocities could be conducted, and the interconnectedness not just of humanity, 
but of evil within it. Held hostage in labor camps in different centuries and an ocean apart, both Jews and African Americans were subjected to a program of purposeful dehumanization. Upon their arrival at the concentration camps, Jews were stripped of the clothing and accoutrements of their former lives, of everything they had owned. Their heads were shaved, their distinguishing features of sideburns or mustaches or the crowns of lush hair were deleted from them. They were no longer individuals. They were no longer personalities to consider, to engage with, to take into account. During the morning and evening roll calls, they were forced to stand sometimes for hours into the night as the SS officers counted the thousands of them to check for any escapees. They stood in the freezing cold or summer heat in the same striped uniforms, with the same shorn heads, same sunken cheeks. They became a single mass of self-same bodies, purposely easier for SS officers to distance themselves from, to feel no human connection with. Loving fathers, headstrong nephews, beloved physicians, dedicated watchmakers, rabbis, and piano tuners, all merged into a single mass of undifferentiated bodies that were no longer seen as humans deserving of empathy, but as objects over whom they could exert total control and do whatever they wanted to. They were no longer people. They were numbers, a means to an end. Upon their arrival at the auction blocks and labor camps of the American South, Africans were stripped of their given names and forced to respond to new ones as would a dog to a new owner, often mocking names like Caesar or Samson or Dread. They were stripped of their past lives and identities as Yoruba or Asante or Ibo, as the son of a fisherman, nephew of the village priest or daughter of a midwife. Decades afterward, Jews were stripped of their given and surnames and forced to memorize the prison numbers assigned them in the concentration camps. Millennia ago, the untouchables of India were assigned surnames that identified them by the lowly work they performed, forcing them to announce their degradation every time they introduced themselves, while the Brahmins, many quite literally, carried the names of the gods. In the two more modern caste systems, at labor camps in Central and Eastern Europe and in the American South, well-fed captors forced their hostages to do the heaviest work of inhuman exertion, while withholding food from those whose labors enriched the captors, providing barely enough to sustain the human metabolism, the bare minimum for human subsistence. The Nazis approached human deprivation as a science. They calculated the number of calories required for a certain task, say, chopping down trees and digging up stumps, and fed those laborers one or two hundred calories fewer as a cost savings, and to keep them too weak to fight back as they slowly starved to death. Southern planters provided their African captives, who were doing the hardest labor in the hierarchy, the least nutrients of anyone on the plantation. Both groups were rarely allowed protein, 
restricted to feed rather than food, some taunted with the extravagance of their captors' multi-course feasts. They were under the complete control and at the whim of their captors, who took every chance to reassert their debasement. Jews were given prison uniforms of coarse fabric in sizes that were purposely too big or too small. Enslaved African Americans were allotted garments of coarse gray cloth, a cross between an undergarment and an ordinary potato bag that was made without regard to the size of the particular individual to whom it was allotted, like penitentiary uniforms. Beyond all of this, the point of a dehumanization campaign was the forced surrender of the target's own humanity, a karmic theft beyond accounting. Whatever was considered a natural human reaction was disallowed for the subordinate caste. During the era of enslavement, they were forbidden to cry as their children were carried off, forced to sing as a wife or husband was sold away, never again to look into their eyes or hear their voice for as long as the two might live. They were punished for the very responses a human being would be expected to have in the circumstances forced upon them. Whatever humanity shone through them was an affront to what the dominant caste kept telling itself. They were punished for being the humans that they could not help but be. In India, Dalits, suffering the deprivations of their lowly status, were nonetheless beaten to death if ever they stole food for the sustenance denied them. As with African Americans during the time of enslavement, it was a crime for Dalits to learn to read and write, punishable by cutting off their tongue or by pouring molten lead into the ear of the offender, wrote V.T. Rashekar, editor of Dalit Voice. In the United States, African Americans denied pay for their labors during slavery and barely paid afterward in the 20th century were whipped or lynched for stealing food, for the accusation of stealing 75 cents, for trying to stand up for themselves or appearing to question a person in the dominant caste. In Nazi labor camps, one of the many cruel details a prisoner could be assigned was to work in the bakery. There, day in and day out, starving captives, forced to subsist on rations of watery nettle or beet soup, kneaded and baked the breads and pastries for their SS tormentors. They were surrounded by the scent of fresh rising dough, but risked a beating or worse if caught taking a crust of bread. In America, slave auctions became public showcases for the dehumanization project of caste-making. As the most valuable liquid assets in the land, combined worth more than land itself, enslaved people were ordered to put on a cheery face to bring a higher profit to the dominant caste sellers who were breaking up their families. Women were forced to disrobe before the crowd, to submit to hours of physical probing by roughhousing men who examined their teeth, their hands, or whatever other parts of their bodies the potential bidders decided to inspect. Their bodies did not belong to them, but to the dominant caste to do whatever it wished and however it wished to do it. 
at auction, they were to answer any question put to them with a smiling, cheerful countenance, or be given thirty lashes for not selling themselves well enough to the seller's satisfaction. When spoken to, they must reply quickly and with a smile on their lips, recalled John Brown, a survivor of slavery who was sold away from his own mother and subjected to these scenes many times thereafter. Here may be seen husbands separated from their wives only by the width of the room, and children from their parents, one or both, witnessing the driving of the bargain that is to tear them asunder forever. Yet not a word of lamentation or anguish must escape from them. Nor when the deed is consummated dare they bid one another goodbye or take one last embrace. In the United States, there developed two parallel worlds existing on the same plane with flagrant double standards to emphasize the purposeful injustices built into the system. Presaging the disparities that led to mass incarceration in our era, the abolitionist minister William Goodell observed the quandary of black people in antebellum America. He is accounted criminal for acts which are deemed innocent in others, Goodell wrote in 1853, punished with a severity from which all others are exempted. He is under the control of the law, though unprotected by the law, and can know law only as an enemy. In Virginia, there were 71 offenses that carried the death penalty for enslaved people, but only imprisonment when committed by whites, such as stealing a horse or setting fire to bales of grain. Something as ordinary to most humans as a father helping a son with his lessons was prohibited. A black father in Georgia could be flogged for teaching his own child to read. Free black people were forbidden to carry firearms, testify against a white person, or raise a hand against one even in self-defense. Richmond required that Negroes and mulattoes must step aside when whites passed by and barred them from riding in carriages, except in the capacity of menials, the historian Kenneth Stamp wrote. Charleston slaves could not swear, smoke, walk with a cane, assemble at military parades, or make joyful demonstrations. Just as enslaved and malnourished Africans had to drain the swamps, chop down the trees, clear the land to build the plantations and infrastructure of the South, the starving captives of the Third Reich had to drain the swamps, chop down the trees, dig up the tree roots, carry the logs to build the infrastructure of their torment. They worked the clay pits and quarries to make bricks for the Reich. Under both regimes, the hostages built the walls that would imprison them, and often died as they did so. Each day during the early years of Nazi expansion, some 2,000 prisoners were marched through the village of Oranienburg, north of Berlin, over the canal bridge from the concentration camp to the clay pits, and would often return that evening with a cart filled with the people who had died of exhaustion or had been killed that day. At the depths of their dehumanization, both Jews and African Americans were subjected to gruesome medical experimentation 
at the hands of dominant caste physicians. In addition to the horrifying torture of twins, German scientists and SS doctors conducted more than two dozen types of experiments on Jews and others they held captive, such as infecting their victims with mustard gas and testing the outer limits of hypothermia. In the United States, from slavery well into the 20th century, doctors used African Americans as a supply chain for experimentation, as subjects deprived of either consent or anesthesia. Scientists injected plutonium into them, purposely let diseases like syphilis go untreated to observe the effects, perfected the typhoid vaccine on their bodies, and subjected them to whatever agonizing experiments came to the doctors' minds. These amounted to unchecked assaults on human beings. One plantation doctor, according to the medical ethicist Harriet A. Washington in her groundbreaking book, Medical Apartheid, made incisions into a black baby's head to test a theory for curing seizures. The doctor opened the baby's skull with cobbler's tools, puncturing the scalp, as he would later report, with the point of a crooked awl. That doctor, James Marion Sims, would later be heralded as the founding father of gynecology. He came to his discoveries by acquiring enslaved women in Alabama and conducting savage surgeries that often ended in disfigurement or death. He refused to administer anesthesia, saying vaginal surgery on them was not painful enough to justify the trouble. Instead, he administered morphine only after surgery, noting that it relieves the scalding of the urine and, as Washington writes, weakened the will to resist repeated procedures. A Louisiana surgeon perfected the cesarean section by experimenting on the enslaved women he had access to in the 1830s. Others later learned how to remove ovaries and bladder stones. They performed these slave cabin experiments in search of breakthroughs for their white patients who would one day undergo surgery in hospitals and under the available anesthesia. Their total control over black bodies gave them unfettered access to the anatomy of live subjects that would otherwise be closed to them. Sims, for example, would force a woman to disrobe and get on her knees on a table. He would then allow other doctors to take turns with the speculum to force her open and invite leading men in town and apprentices in to see for themselves. He later wrote, I saw everything as no man had seen before. We would all like to believe that we would resist the impulse to inflict such horror on fellow members of our own species, and some of us very likely would, but not as many as we might like to believe. In a famous, though controversial, 1963 study of people's threshold for violence when ordered to inflict it, college students were told to administer electric shocks to a person in an adjoining room. The people receiving the shocks were unharmed, but yelled out and banged on the walls 
as the intensity of the shocks increased. The conductor of the study, the psychologist Stanley Milgram, found that a majority of participants, two out of three, could be induced to deliver the maximal voltage to an innocent suffering subject, wrote the scholar David Livingstone Smith, who specializes in the study of dehumanization. In a similar experiment conducted at Stanford University in 1975, the participants did not have to be ordered to deliver the shocks. They needed only to overhear a single negative comment about the students facing potential punishment. The participants were led to believe that students from another college were arriving for a joint project. Some participants overheard the experimenters, presumably by accident, make neutral or humanizing comments about the visiting students, that they seemed nice. Other participants heard dehumanizing comments, that they seemed like animals. Participants gave the dehumanized people twice the punishment of the humanized ones, and significantly more than those they knew absolutely nothing about. The participants were willing to go to maximum intensity on the dehumanized group. Dehumanization is a joint creation of biology, culture, and the architecture of the human mind, Smith wrote. The human story is filled with pain and tragedy, but among the horrors that we have perpetrated on one another, the persecution and attempted extermination of the Jewish people, the brutal enslavement of Africans, and the destruction of Native American civilizations, in many respects, are unparalleled. In America, a culture of cruelty crept into the minds, made violence and mockery seem mundane and amusing, built as it was into the games of chance at carnivals and county fairs well into the 20th century. These things built up the immune system against empathy. There was an attraction called the Coon Dip, in which fairgoers hurled projectiles at live African Americans. There was the Beanum, in which children flung beanbags at grotesquely caricatured black faces, whose images alone taught the lesson of caste without a word needing to be spoken. And enthusiasts lined up to try their luck at the Son of Ham shows at Coney Island or Kansas City or out in California, in which white men paid for the pleasure of hurling baseballs at the head of a black man, Smith wrote. A certain kind of violence was part of an unspoken curriculum for generations of children in the dominant caste. White culture desensitized children to racial violence, wrote the historian Christina Durocher, so they could perpetuate it themselves one day. Pillar number seven, terror as enforcement, cruelty as a means of control. The only way to keep an entire group of sentient beings in an artificially fixed place beneath all others and beneath their own talents is with violence and terror, psychological and physical, to preempt resistance before it can be imagined. Evil asks little of the dominant caste other than to sit back and do nothing. 
All that it needs from bystanders is their silent complicity in the evil committed on their behalf. Though a caste system will protect, and perhaps even reward, those who deign to join in the terror. Jews in Nazi-controlled Europe, African Americans in the antebellum and Jim Crow South, and Dalits in India, were all at the mercy of people who had been fed a diet of contempt and hate for them, and had incentive to try to prove their superiority by joining in or acquiescing to cruelties against their fellow humans. Above all, the people in the subordinate caste were to be reminded of the absolute power the dominant caste held over them. In both America and in Germany, people in the dominant caste whipped and hanged their hostages for random and capricious breaches of caste, punished them for the natural human responses to the injustice they were being subjected to. In America, the whip was the most common instrument of punishment, the historian Kenneth Stamp wrote. Nearly every slaveholder used it, and few grown slaves escaped it entirely. In Germany, the Nazis forced and strapped Jews and political prisoners onto a wooden board to be flogged for minor infractions like rolling cigarettes from leaves they gathered or killing rats to augment their bare rations. The captives were forced to count out each lash as it was inflicted upon them. The Nazis claimed a limit of 25 lashes, but would play mind games by claiming that the victim had not counted correctly, then extend the torture even longer. The Americans went to as many as 400 lashes, torture that amounted to murder, with several men growing exhausted from the physical exertion it required, taking turns with the whip. In the New World, few living creatures were, as a class of beings, subjected to the level of brute physical assault as a feature of their daily lives for as many centuries as were the subjects of American slavery. It was so commonplace that some overseers, upon arriving at a new plantation, summarily chose to whip every hand on the plantation to let them know who was in command, Stamp wrote. Some used it as incentive by flogging the last slave out of the cabin in the morning. Many used it to break in a young slave and to break the spirit of an insubordinate older one. A teenager endured a whipping that went on for so long, he passed out in the middle of it. He woke up vomiting, the historian Edward Baptist recounted. They were still beating him. He slipped into darkness again. One enslaver remarked that he was no better pleased than when he could hear the sound of the driver's lash among the toiling slaves. For then, Baptist wrote, he knew his system was working. Human history is rife with examples of inconceivable violence, and as Americans, we like to think of our country as being far beyond the guillotines of medieval Europe or the reign of the Huns. And yet it was here that Native Americans were occasionally skinned and made into bridal reins, wrote the scholar Charles Mills.
Andrew Jackson, the U.S. president, who oversaw the forced removal of indigenous people from their ancestral homelands during that Trail of Tears, used bridle reins of indigenous flesh when he went horseback riding. And it was here that, into the 20th century, African Americans were burned alive at the stake, as 17-year-old Jesse Washington was in Waco, Texas, in 1916 before a crowd of thousands. The crimes of homicide, of rape, and of assault and battery were felonies in the slavery era, as they are today in any civil society. They were seen then as wrong, immoral, reprehensible, and worthy of the severest punishment. But the country allowed most any atrocity to be inflicted on the black body. Thus, twelve generations of African Americans faced the ever-present danger of assault and battery or worse, every day of their lives during the quarter millennium of enslavement. Advertisements for runaways record a catalog of assaults upon them. A North Carolina enslaver took out an ad for the return of Betty and reported having burnt her with a hot iron on the left side of her face. I tried to make the letter M. A warden in Louisiana reported that he had just taken custody of a runaway and noted that he has been lately gelded and is not yet well. Another Louisianan reported his disgust for a neighbor who had castrated three men of his. An order from the justices went out in New Hanover County, North Carolina, in the search of a runaway named London, granting that any person may kill and destroy the said slave by such means as he or they may think fit. This casual disregard for black life and the deputizing of any citizen to take that life would become a harbinger of the low value accorded African Americans in the police and vigilante shootings of unarmed black citizens that continued into the early decades of the 21st century. Some argue in hindsight that people who were enslaved were seen as too valuable to be hurt or killed. That argument disregards the many instances of humans trashing their own property of absentee slumlords who get by with the least maintenance of their buildings, for example, with often catastrophic consequences. But more important, it misinterprets violence as merely damage to one's property, presumably rare and against the interests of the owner, when it was actually a terror mechanism that was part of the regular maintenance of an unnatural institution, part of the calculus of American slavery. A Louisiana planter once left his plantation in the care of an overseer and staff. Upon returning after a year's absence, the planter discovered the overseer and his men had beaten and starved the enslaved people while the planter was away, and that his inventory had shrunk. On that one family plantation, at least twelve slaves had died at the overseer's hands, Stamp wrote. The planter would have to factor that loss into the cost of doing business. Nazi Germany and the American South devised shockingly similar means of punishment to instill terror in the subordinate caste. 
hostages in Nazi labor camps were subjected to public hangings in front of a full assemblage of camp prisoners for any minor offense or merely to remind the survivors of the power of their captors. In the special prisons inside the concentration camps, there stood a lynching post designed to draw out the agony of the captive being killed. Across the ocean, in the same era, lynchings, preceded by mutilation, were a feature of the southern landscape. Both the Germans in the Nazi era and the descendants of the Confederacy used ritualized torture for arbitrary infractions, some as minor as stealing shoes or pocket change, or in the case of the American South, for acting out of one's place. It was during the era of enslavement that Americans in the South devised a range of horrors to keep human beings in the unnatural state of perpetual, generational imprisonment. Fourteen-pound chains and metal horns radiating two or three feet from the skull were locked onto the heads of people who tried to escape. Slave pens had flogging rooms in the attics where rows of wooden cleats for the reeving cords were screwed into the floor to tie people down for their floggings for not speaking up and looking bright and smart to their potential buyers. Every day there was flogging going on, wrote John Brown, a survivor of slavery. The tortures were elaborate enough to be given names. One was called bucking, in which the person was stripped naked, hands and feet tied, forced into a sitting position around a stake, and rotated for three hours of flogging with a cowhide, as other enslaved people were forced to watch. The person was then washed down with salt and red pepper. An enslaved man named John Glasgow was punished in this way for having slipped away to see his wife on another plantation. Then there was the picket, which involved iron cleats, pulleys, and cords that formed a gallows along the crossbeam of a whipping post and the sharp end of a stake. John Glasgow suffered this too after attempting to see his wife again. His fellow captives were made to take turns whipping him or face the same punishment themselves. He was left to die or recover as might be, Brown said. It was a month before he stirred from his plank. Five months more elapsed ere he could walk. Ever after, he had a limp in his gait. After slavery ended, the former Confederates took power again, but now, without the least material investment in the lives of the people they once had owned, they pressed down even harder to keep the lowest caste in its place. African Americans were mutilated and hanged from poplars and sycamores and burned at the courthouse square, a lynching every three or four days in the first four decades of the 20th century. A slaveholder in North Carolina seemed to speak for the enforcers of caste throughout the world. Make them stand in fear, she said. The dominant caste demonstrated its power by forcing captives to perform some of the more loathsome duties connected to the violence against their fellow captives. P. 
people in the upper caste did not often trouble themselves with the dirty work, unless specifically hired for the job of enforcement, as were the plantation overseers in the American South. It was caste privilege to order the lowest caste to do their bidding and dirty work. It was part of the psychological degradation that reinforced one's own stigma and utter subjugation, so dominated that they were left with little choice but to cooperate if they were to save themselves for one more day. The Nazis in Germany and the planters in the authoritarian South sowed dissension among the subordinate caste by creating a hierarchy among the captives, rewarding those who identified more with the oppressor rather than the oppressed and who would report back to them any plots of escape or uprising. They would select a captive they felt they could control and elevate that person above the others. In Nazi labor camps, it was the capo, the head Jew in each hut of captives, whose job it was to get everyone up by five in the morning and to exact discipline. In exchange, he would get a bunk of his own or other meager privileges. In the American South, it was the slave driver, the head Negro, who served this role, setting the pace for the work at hand and elevated with the task of watching over the others and disciplining them when called to do so. The dominant caste often forced its captives to exact punishment on one another or to dispose of the victims as their tormentors watched. In Nazi Germany, the SS guards were not the ones who put the prisoners into the ovens. The captives were forced into that grim detail. It was not the SS who collected the bodies of the people who had died the night before. That was left to the captives. In the American South, black men, were made to whip their fellow slaves, or to hold down the legs and arms of the man, woman, or child being flogged. Later, when lynchings were the primary means of terror, it was the people who had done the lynching who told the family of the victim or the black undertaker when they would be permitted to take down what was left of the body from the lynching tree. One day in the mid-18th century, an elder of the Presbyterian Church was passing through a piece of timbered land in a slaving province of the American South when he heard what he called a sound as of murder. He rode in that direction and discovered a naked black man hung to the limb of a tree by his hands, his feet chained together, and a pine rail laid with one end on the chain between his legs and the other upon the ground to steady him the overseer had administered 400 lashes on the man's body. The miserably lacerated slave was then taken down and put to the care of a physician, the Presbyterian elder said. The elder asked the overseer, one of the men who had inflicted this upon another human being, the offense for which all this was done. He was told that the enslaved man had made a comment that was seen as beyond his station. It began when the owner said that the rows of corn the enslaved man had planted were uneven. The enslaved man offered his opinion. Massa, much corn grow on a crooked row as a straight one. 
the enslaved man replied. For that, he was flogged to the brink of death. This was it. This was enough, the Presbyterian elder said. The overseer boasted of his skill in managing the master's property. The enslaved man was submitted to him and treated as above. A century later, slavery was over, but the rules and the consequences for breaking them were little changed. A young white anthropologist from Yale University, John Dollard, went south to the Mississippi Delta in 1935 for his research into the Jim Crow caste system. He noticed how subservient the black people were, stepping aside for him, taking their hats off, and calling him sir, even if they were decades older. One day he was out riding with some other white men, southern white men, who were checking out some black sharecroppers. The black people were reluctant to come out of their cabins when the car with the white men pulled up. The driver had some fun with it, told the sharecroppers he was not going to hang them. Later, Dollard mentioned to the man that the Negroes seemed to be very polite around here. The man let out a laugh. They have to be. Pillar number eight, inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. The Hollywood Still is from a 1930s movie released during the depths of the Jim Crow era. A black woman, ample in frame and plain of face, wears a headscarf and servant's uniform. Her arms are wrapped around a white woman, slender, cherubic, and childlike, her golden hair and porcelain airbrushed skin pops against the purposely unadorned darkness of the black woman. When they begin to speak, the dark woman will utter backward syllables of servility and ignorance. The porcelain woman will speak with the mannered refinement of the upper caste. The fragile frame of Mary Pickford is in direct contrast to the heft of Louise Beavers in a set piece of caste played out in a thousand films and images in America, implanting into our minds the inherent superiority in beauty, deservedness, and intellect of one group over another. As it happens, the black actress, Louise Beavers, was nothing like the image she was given, little option but to play. She grew up in California and had to learn and to master the broken dialect of southern field hands and servants. She was frequently under stress in the narrow box she was confined to, which led her to lose weight on set. The filmmakers made her attach padding to her already full frame to ensure that she contrasted all the more with the waifish white ingenues who were the stars of whatever film she was in. Beneath each pillar of caste was the presumption and continual reminder of the inborn superiority of the dominant caste and the inherent inferiority of the subordinate. It was not enough that the designated groups be separated for reasons of pollution, or that they not intermarry, or that the lowest people suffer due to some religious curse, but that it must be understood in every interaction 
that one group was superior and inherently deserving of the best in a given society, and that those who were deemed lowest were deserving of their plight. For the lowest caste person, his unquestioned inferiority had to be established, wrote the anthropologists Audrey and Brian Smedley, and that alleged inferiority would become the basis for his allocation to permanent servile status. At every turn, the caste system drilled into the people under its spell the deference due those born to the upper caste and the degradation befitting the subordinate caste. This required signs and symbols and customs to elevate the upper caste and to demean those assigned to the bottom in small and large ways and in everyday encounters. He must be held subject, like other domestic animals, observed the 19th century abolitionist William Goodall, to the superior race holding dominion over him. African Americans during the century of the Jim Crow regime and Jews during the murderous twelve years of the Third Reich were often prohibited from sidewalks and were forced instead to give way to the dominant caste or to walk in the gutter as a reminder of their degraded station. If a Negro man or woman met a white person on the street in Richmond, Virginia, for example, wrote the historian Bertram Doyle, they were required to give the wall and, if necessary, to get off the sidewalk into the street on pain of punishment with stripes on the bare back. During the height of the caste systems in America, in India, and in the Third Reich, the lowest caste was not permitted to bear the symbols of success and status reserved for the upper caste. They were not to be dressed better than the upper caste, not to drive better cars than the upper caste, not to have homes more extravagant than the upper caste should they manage to secure them. In India, the caste system dictated the length and folds of a Dalit woman's saris. Dalits were not to wear the clothing or jewelry of upper caste people, but rather tattered, rougher clothing as the marks of their inferiority. In America, the South Carolina Negro Code of 1735 went so far as to specify the fabrics enslaved black people were permitted to wear, forbidding any that might be seen as above their station. They were banned from wearing any sort of garment or apparel whatsoever, finer, other, or of greater value than Negro cloth. Duffels, coarse kerseys, osnabrigs, blue linen, check linen, or coarse garlics or calicoes, the cheapest, roughest fabrics available to the colony. Two hundred years later, the spirit of that law was still in force as African-American soldiers were set upon and killed for wearing their army uniforms. In Germany, one of the characteristics that enraged the Nazis was the wealth and success of German Jews and any public display of it. Late in the Second World War, a young Jewish woman in Berlin had on a fur coat when the Gestapo rounded her and others up and shoved them onto cattle cars to the concentration camps. Upon arrival, the SS were incensed to see a Jewish woman in fur that their wives could likely not afford, and out of hatred, 
forced her into the camp's pigsty and rolled her in her fur coat over and over in the icy muck, leaving her to die in the bitter cold. But this was just days before the Allied forces reached them, and this was how she survived, eating the food scraps thrown into the sty. She huddled beside the pigs and stayed warm until liberation. From the beginning, the power of caste and the superior status of the dominant group was perhaps never clearer than when the person deemed superior was unquestionably not. Given that intelligence is distributed in relatively similar proportions among individuals in any subset, it was a special form of human abuse that everyone in a particular group, regardless of intellect, morality, ethics, or humaneness, was automatically accorded control over everyone in another group, regardless of their gifts. The historian Kenneth Stamp described the arbitrary nature of life for enslaved people in the caste system, the terrifying forced submission to individuals who were unfit for absolute power over the life and death of another. They were owned by a woman unable to read or write, Stamp wrote, scarcely able to count to ten, legally incompetent to contract marriage, and yet had to submit to her sovereignty, depend upon her for their next breath. They were owned by drunkards, such as Lilburn Lewis of Livingston County, Kentucky, who once chopped a slave to bits with an axe, Stamp wrote, and by sadists, such as Madame Lalaurie of New Orleans, who tortured her slaves for her own amusement. In order to survive, they were to give way to the most wretched white man, observed the Farmer's Register of 1834. For much of the time that African Americans have been in this land, they have had to find ways to stay alive in a structure that required total submission, a close reading of their betters, and the performance of that submission in order to avoid savage punishment. They must obey at all times and under all circumstances, cheerfully and with alacrity, said a Virginia slaveholder. They had to adjust themselves to the shifting and arbitrary demands of whatever dominant person they happened to be encountering in that moment. This created a nerve-jangling existence, given that any number of acts, according to a North Carolina judge during the time of slavery, could be read as insolence, whether it was a look, the pointing of a finger, a refusal or neglect to step out of the way when a white person is seen to approach. To these, the 19th century orator Frederick Douglass added the following gestures that could incite white rage and violence. In the tone of an answer, Douglas wrote, in answering at all, in not answering, in the expression of countenance, in the motion of the head, in the gait, manner, and bearing. Any one of these, if tolerated, would destroy that subordination upon which our social system rests, the North Carolina judge said. This code extended for generations. Years after the Nazis were defeated across the Atlantic, 
African Americans were still being brutalized for the least appearance of stepping out of their place. Planters routinely whipped their sharecroppers for trivial offenses, wrote Allison Davis and Burley and Mary Gardner in 1941. A planter in Mississippi said that if his tenant didn't stop acting so big, the next time it would be the bullet or a rope. That is the way to manage them when they get too big. In 1948, a black tenant farmer in Louise, Mississippi, was severely beaten by two whites, wrote the historian James C. Cobb, because he asked for a receipt after paying his water bill. The most trivial interaction had to be managed with ranking in mind. Well into the 1960s in the American South, the mere boarding of a public bus was a tightly choreographed affair devised for maximum humiliation and stigma to the lowest caste. Unlike dominant caste passengers who climbed aboard, paid their bus fare, and took a seat, black passengers had to climb up, pay their fare, then get off the bus so as not to pollute or disturb the white section by walking through it. Having been forced to disembark after paying, they then had to run to the back door of the bus to board in the colored section. It was not uncommon for the bus to drive off before they could make it to the back door. The passengers who had the least room for error, the least resources to lose the benefit of the ticket they had paid for, the least cushion to weather a setback, would now be humiliated as the bus pulled off without them, now likely to arrive late for work, thus putting already tenuous jobs at further risk. The Negro occupies a position of inferiority and servility, of which he is constantly reminded when traveling, by restriction and by the attitudes of his white neighbors, wrote the historian Bertram Doyle. The laws and protocols kept them both apart and low. The greater the chasm, the easier to distance and degrade, the easier to justify any injustice or depravity. The human meaning of caste for those who live it is power and vulnerability, privilege and oppression, honor and denigration, plenty and want, reward and deprivation, Security and anxiety, wrote the preeminent American scholar of caste, Gerald Berriman. A description of caste which fails to convey this is a travesty. In the slaveholding South, some in the dominant caste grew so accustomed to the embedded superiority built into their days and the brutality that it took to maintain it that they wondered how they might manage in the afterlife. Is it possible that any of my slaves could go to heaven? A dominant caste woman in South Carolina asked her minister, and I must see them there. A century after the slaveholder spoke those words, the caste system had survived and mutated, its pillars intact. America was fighting in World War II, and the public school district in Columbus, Ohio, decided to hold an essay contest, challenging students to consider the question, what to do with Hitler after the war? It was the spring of 1944, the same year that a black boy was forced to jump to his death in front of his stricken father 
over the Christmas card the boy had sent to a white girl at work. In that atmosphere, a 16-year-old African-American girl thought about what should befall Hitler. She won the student essay contest with a single sentence. Put him in a black skin and let him live the rest of his life in America. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we will stop there. We will pick up at the very beginning of part four, the tentacles of caste. That's part four. We'll start there for our second audio segment. Uh, we are here for this broadcast today, broadcasting live. You should be able to listen uh, via the live stream as well. Uh, if you had any difficulties, restart. I did have to restart the server for some reason, but you can listen via phone or online. If you'd like to dial in thoughts, questions, the number 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate email is until justice at gmail.com we'll get folks who wrote in as well uh, for people who were listening uh, I actually have the ebook and the picture wasn't there she was talking about uh, I guess a, a photo probably from uh, the 1930 film Imitation of Life. So Louise Beavers is who was mentioned. Black female actress. Had to go uh, dig since the picture wasn't right there in the writing of the text. But uh, if you have not seen Imitation of Life, uh, this is a beloved movie, beloved film. Uh, it's uh, readily available, I believe. You can go online and check it out or library and what have you I think the main plot since she didn't really go into detail about it that might be a, a, a slight uh, critique that's such an important film to not mention but there is a white woman she has a child she's down and out struggling trying to get by this uh, black female comes through she has her daughter she says, hey, I'll help you out. Don't worry about paying me. I'm going to help you out. And as long as we have a place to stay, myself and my daughter will make this thing go. And of course, this is Louise Beaver's character. Of course, one thing black female can do, especially an overweight black person, overweight black female, I can get in that kitchen and make flapjacks. So she makes these pancakes and the white woman says, hey, I will steal this nigra's pancake recipe and of course she makes a fortune and keeps the nigger working with her as a maid and blah 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 just goes off from there I think the the climax of the movie is Louise Beaver's daughter is very pale pale enough to pass for white 
she gets disgusted by her black mom. Ah, I don't want to be around. Get away from me, Coon. Go and be white. So she goes out to be white. And I think something happens where either they find out that she has a black mom. I think she has this white boyfriend and he finds out that she's black or something. And, you know, everything becomes horrible. Like uh, they had a big moment where like she sees her mother out in the street and she walks right past her. Like, oh, you know, get away. I'm white now. Get away from me, Coon. That type of thing. But that is imitation of life. There's a lot of other background stories. And this is a beloved film. In fact, they remade it. They made the film in 1930. Uh, in black and white and then they made it again uh, in 1950 I don't think Louise Beavers is in uh, that rendition of it incidentally she has a massive like film biography if you look at her body of work it is extraordinary like she didn't even live a very long time she died at the age of 60 but she is credited with 168 screen appearances which I mean I don't know if Denzel Washington has that many credits but I mean wow I guess so you heard that right that's one 168 film credits as an actress spanning from 1927 Uncle Tom's Cabin all the way to 1961 okay most of the time she has the name Aunt Nellie, Mammy, Ophelia, Aunt Tina, Aunt Lindy. It'll be lots of names like that. Aunt Tina, Aunt Cindy, Aunt Lindy. Things of that name. Mammy, like, oh, we. She is Mammy about 5,000 times. If she got 168 film credits, she played the role or was called Mammy in about 25 of them. Aunt Tina, Aunt Lily, and that type of thing, and a bunch of others. Maid, sometimes she didn't even get the name Mammy. Sometimes it would just be Maid and Uncredited. That'll be, you can put that in about 20 times too. Maid, Uncredited. Black Convict, you put that in. <laughs> Woo! It has not improved at all. Well, in fact, I just wanted to read really quick the top of her uh, bio line. This is from Internet movie database it reads 1930s and 1940s film actress Louise Beavers was merely one of a dominant gallery of plus sized and plus talented African American character actresses forced to endure blatant discouraging and demeaning stereotypes during depression era and World War II Hollywood that's immediately getting to the uh, being obese, being overweight deliberately that Isabel Wilkerson talked about. And notice this paragraph also fails to call it racism. Uh, I'll give a little bit more. It wasn't until Louise's triumphant role in Fanny Hurst's classic soper, Imitation of Life, 1934, that a film of major significance offered a black role of meaning, substance, and humanity. Now, let me make sure this is, I've seen this film a number of times. I don't know if we did a film on it, but this film, you got a down and out white woman, not married with a daughter, down and out black female with a daughter. The black female comes and stays with the white woman, makes pancakes. The white woman gets rich 
and the black female or the yeah the black female's daughter attempts to pass which includes she has to distance herself from and mistreat her own black mother and eventually fails and i think the movie ends with the black mother's death and her daughter comes back and feels very bad and too late to say sorry now the end i guess that's humanity i reckon uh, 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 uh louise louise's servile role as housekeeper delilah who works for single white mother claudette colbert was a poignant and touching three-dimensional character that had its own dramatic story brilliantly handling the heartbreaking co-plot of an appeasing single parent whose light-skinned daughter now this is what i mean this book is about caste and the hierarchy you couldn't take a few seconds to go into the detail of that narrative because that's such a as we said classic film uh watershed moment continuing brilliantly handling the heartbreaking co-plot of an appeasing single parent whose light-skinned daughter went to cruel and desperate lengths to pass for dominant caste it doesn't say that while louise certainly championed in the role and managed to steal the lion's share of reviews right from under the film's superstar the movie triggered major controversy and just as many complaints as compliments from black and white viewers this certainly did not help what could have been a major positive shift in black filmmaking instead for the next two or more decades Louise was again forced back to secondary status. She was making flapjacks in this film. Like, I don't, if that's, <sighs> I could be in error. Blah, blah, blah. Moving forward. Uh, we did have, I did, for, or I didn't forget, I just didn't get to read one portion of uh, one of our listeners' written commentary because we didn't get that far. So I'll include that bit now and then I can move forward with all the new commentary from this week. So this was the last bit from last week that he wrote about chapter six or pillar number six, dehumanizing, dehumanization and stigma, which we just covered today. Number one, Nazis approached human deprivation as a science. They calculated number of calories required for a certain task, say chopping down trees and digging up stumps and fed those laborers one or 200 calories less as a cost savings and to keep them too weak to fight back as they slowly starved to death. The author does not provide any evidence that the Indian case system incorporated precise and scientific methods of domination Unlike the system engineered by whites. Very good point. Number two, a certain kind of violence was part of an unspoken curriculum for generations of children in the dominant caste. White culture desensitized children to racial violence. The white children who are smiling in the lynching postcards seem to be enjoying the spectacle characterizing their response as desensitized may not be accurate. Agreed. She incidentally, uh, she quotes in again, this book, the references are hidden. Maybe it's not that way in the uh, hardback hardcover edition. I don't know. I will never spend a nickel on this book, but 
unlike the warmth of other suns where the footnotes are right there within the body of the text it's not that way in this book so I view that as the references are kind of hidden and kind of skimpy uh, but she does have a reference for the book Raising Racists The Socialization of White Children in the Jim Crow South by Christina DeRocher. That book was published in 2018. We'll see if we can get her on the program because this looks like a white person. But yeah, I'll wonder. I'll see if she thinks that white children are desensitized because we've read a lot of books where white children enjoy and are a part of the violence of white supremacy racism. We read that over and over again in James Lowen sundown towns white children were a part of the violence the enforcement of racist violence get into the phone line star six one if you have uh thoughts comments uh questions to share the first portion of isabel wilkerson's case uh let's see folks who dialed in with the hand up should be with us can i be here Greetings, Henry, in Chicago. All right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, The sentence, the United States blamed African-Americans for many of its social ills. I I didn't get that. Um, I don't know if that made any sense or not, but I kind of highlighted that with a question mark, so I didn't know what what she was talking about when she said that. Um, Women were forced to disrobe before the crowd, to submit to hours of physical probing by roughhousing men who examined their teeth, their hands, and whatever other parts of their bodies and potential bidders decided to inspect. Now, she just mentioned women, but from uh, reading other sources of, you know, the selling of slaves on slave auction blocks, men and children were also included in this as well. So I'm pretty sure it wasn't just women who were being, you know, sexually molested. You know, obviously we know that men were also uh, sexually molested as well uh, by their white slave masters. Uh, you know, we read uh, the delectable Negro and uh, Tommy, uh, Dr. Tommy Curry's work, so uh, we already know that. A um, couple of points uh, in regards to this book, uh, not liking the book, but there are a few minor points that she brings out, like uh, uh, the part where she references Harriet A. Washington's medical apartheid. Uh, I thought that was uh, thought that would have been uh, pretty uh, interesting, and also constructive to somebody who's probably reading this book and notices the Harry A. Washington reference, which is probably a better book uh, about racism that somebody might want to pick up. But uh, she she does give a nice reference to uh, Miss Washington's work in regards to that. So maybe somebody would pick that up and look at that one. Um, she definitely does try to kind of force the comparisons of the uh, American uh, chattel slavery and Nazi Germany. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, uh, Nazi Germany is a extreme expression of white supremacy uh, in its own right, but uh, in regards to 
the terrorism and the terrorism that uh, non-white uh, black people has experienced during racism. I, I I don't see the comparisons in regards to the extremities of what has happened. And then even after when slavery was officially over, I mean, uh, non-white black people were still being terrorized. And so uh, in a sense, you know, at least the Jews in Germany were able to escape, you know, those who could escape uh, to other countries uh, in Europe uh, where they were harbored and kept safe, whereas, you know, slaves that ran to the north, they still was able to, uh, you know, come and capture them uh, due to the fugitive slave law in some of those uh, northern states. So, uh, and then also, too, and I'm not very much in depth, but, you know, just reading, you know, some of the work about what happened in Nazi Germany, a lot of the, a lot of the murders and terrorism is being done by Nazis, Nazi officials like the SS and, you know, Hitler stormtroopers. But, you know, when you're talking about the terrorism that black people are being, you know, is faced here, you know, they're not just being, you know, killed by law enforcement. You know, regular citizens is actually uh, killing, you know, non-white black people. So it's not just, you know, the state officials. It's everybody, you know, killing uh, black people and uh, every, every white person killing black people here. So, you know, uh, I, I kind of find the comparisons a little bit forced in regards to that. Uh, and also, too, you know, when she talked about the coon dip and the beanum and throwing baseballs at, you know, at the heads of black men, you know, I don't think I remember reading in Nazi Germany that they were doing that to to Jewish children and, you know, and, and men tying them up and throwing baseballs at them, you know, just, you know, kind of torturing them. So, uh, you know, like I said, they just, you know, better off just killed them, which, you know, is, is, is not any better. But, you know, you look at what black people have gone through here, it's basically they kept you alive so they can torture you and terrorize you. Um, being whipped and uh, throwing salt on their back, uh, that's a narrative uh, my family has gone through. My great-great-grandmother um, well, we've had that narrative repeated to us in regards to some of the stuff that we learned about with her and her interactions with the slave master that owned my family. So uh, that was one of the things that 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 was told to us from from the generations. And uh, what the non-white black girl said about what should be done with Hitler to put him in a black skin and let him live the rest of his life in America. Uh, for me, I thought that was uh, a very much less confused. I think she kind of got an understanding of, of racism in in this country. I thought that was actually, you know, pretty pretty good response uh, for what to do with Hitler. But uh, um, but yeah, I, I just think that she. Uh, uh, I think with this book overall, if she would have just you know, use racism instead of caste. It would would have been a much better book because all the evidence that she is uh, that she is presenting is just basically white supremacy racism. So, you know, I don't know why she's forcing this word caste, you know, upon the readers. But 
Um, that's all I have on me, my life. Mm. Didn't hear anything comparable to the coon dip in India. I didn't hear that either. Uh, much obliged as well. I think it was Henry in Chicago uh, last week. <clears throat> he encouraged us to check out the Black Agenda Report uh, book review for Cased, uh, which I did. Uh, you can check it out as well. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book Cased and the Discontent of a Ruling Class in Crisis. Uh, I will... There's many things I could say about the uh, report. Um, many things, but there was one line. Uh, I think, let's see, Henry in Chicago, I think, mentioned a great line last week uh, in the book, the superficial nature uh, of the text. Uh, and then there was one other line as I read. Let's see. Make sure I get it. Mm-mm-mm all of the craziness week I'm stunned that I even had the opportunity to go through and read and make highlights let's see if it doesn't pop up in the next second I'll I'll go through and make sure I get it again I would have highlighted and had it ready to go but let's see I will share yes I will share after I will share after I've had another second to kind of dip through but there was a great sentence that reminded me quite a bit uh, of one of the lines that we mentioned on the program before but I'll get it after we hear from a few more listeners other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary proceed can I be heard greetings retired firefighter greetings Gus greetings to uh, everyone uh, I'll start off with the uh, the uh, uh, commentary at the last part of the reading uh, with the, I believe it was the uh, black child. Uh, I, I can recall Dr. Welsing uh, interviewing a child that said something kind of similar. And I would just repeat what Dr. Welsing said, IQ of 150 <laughs> uh, with the, uh, uh, I, I've heard that I've heard that particular story before. I just can't recall where, uh, when, and where. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, to say something that didn't take a long time to be able to write it down—I think it was something written—and uh, to be so, in my opinion, so concise as far as logic is concerned from a quote-unquote child. Uh, as I mentioned before, IQ 150. Uh, you cannot, you cannot report all of this travesty, all of this terror, all of this, I mean, unprecedented uh, incorrectness and just com- compact it into a one word identified as Cass. I mean, uh, I'll give her uh, a uh, good credit for to be able to to be able to uh, identify these different instances. But to 
crowd all of them into this one word called cast is I'm sorry, it's it's a travesty to to uh to attempt to do something like that. Uh I mean ah, it, it's it's just incorrect. It's just incorrect. Uh I would say anyone that tries to compare mistreatment uh out of different uh versions of non white people are going to have problems with that. And my my from my understanding logically there'd be something that you you don't do because I I mean you you you're running to you're running to trouble to whereas it will confuse people. I put it that way. Uh uh comparing uh the comparison of what took place in uh Germany between nineteen thirty three and nineteen forty five I believe and what was going on with another another group of non white people. Uh because those that incidents that took place between nineteen thirty three and nineteen forty five, the uh the uh Nazis did consider that that group of people were not white, from my understanding. Uh, but we're talking about something, another situation that not only took place, took centuries. It's still going on now. It's still go- it's still going on now. Uh, prior to. World War II, I would say in the early part of the 20th century, uh, in the first battle that, that was called World War I, uh, the same people were, were identified as uh, respect, respectable people in the, in the quote-unquote German community, uh, you know, as doctors, lawyers, even uh, uh, members of the armed forces uh, in, that, in the, what was called the quote-unquote Great War, World War I. You know, uh, yeah, imitation of life. Uh, I'm familiar. I'm more familiar with the. I've seen the the the, the original one that you were talking about, uh, and I'm sure you know there was a second rendition of the first movie. It had some slight differences. It had some slight differences. Uh, instead of the black female being a uh, pancake maker the black female in the second movie in the 50s was primarily was hired as a a maid housemaid uh the actress that was uh the daughter in the first movie was actually was a non-white female who passed for a uh, who passed for a uh, white uh, female, and the second redemption of the movie was actually it actually was a white woman that was playing a non-white female that was that was acting as a 
I'm, I'm almost confused myself, but I think you know what I'm talking about by, by now on that. But uh, yeah, the second movie, and also in the because that 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 was a, that was the one that was more or less a part of uh, the my generation as a child, and it was viewed annually. It was viewed annually for various reasons. Uh, I would say one of the main reasons because of the late gospel great Mahalia Jackson. Uh, sung in the last part of the movie. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I can recall that as a child. Every year, that that would be uh, viewed by black people, especially black females, in the mo- uh, watching the movie. But, uh, yeah, that's my uh, report on the first reading. Thank you. Much obliged. I'm not surprised to hear that that was a beloved film for a long stretch of time. I've seen them both, the black and white version and the color version. And these films uh, came out decades before I was even born. And I've seen them both. I think I've seen them both repeatedly, uh, in fact. Uh, They are interesting films uh, about the system Mm -hmm. of... uh, White supremacy. Oop, I found that line from Black Agenda Report. Uh, so it is. The book's argument arguments go back to the middle 1940s and the white establishment's efforts to whitewash race from social discourse. The reason was to prevent the idea being used for purposes akin to the ways Nazism did. Gunnar Murdahl and Ashley Montague well-meaning liberals, so-called, led the charge. Murdahl's massive study of race, an American dilemma, wrestled unsuccessfully with the crises of racial oppression and how to save liberal democracy, whatever that means. Dubois, Oliver Cromwell Cox, and a cadre of black social scientists had concluded the race problem remained the problem of the 20th century and could not be disguised by using other language. Great line. Black Agenda Report. Other parts of the piece, you know, man, BGQ. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Mo in Dallas. Thank you. Uh, greetings, guys. Greetings to the listeners and callers. Um, I'd like to start with, um, I think it was, I believe I read this from an interview, um, that, that the interview segment that you played in the beginning of the call. Um, and she had stated that we are in a cast, we are in a cast in a play. Um, I think she said that. Uh, I could be an error. But um, I believe, but I did hear the quote and wrote it down. Um, I believe that that is um, disrespectful and dehumanizing to victims of racism, um, because victims and racism, victims of racism aren't. Uh, they don't believe that they're cast in a play, and they're not acting confused. Um, um, they are confused, um, and this is not a role being played. This is uh, conditioning. So I believe that that's just um, minimizing um, the conditions of victims 
of her quote unquote caste system. Um, I did um, I did text. Uh, she got a gold star for for this in my book. Um, <clears throat> individuality is a luxury afforded to the dominant caste. Um, um, I do believe that. Um, and if she could have substituted dominant caste for white supremacists, I would have felt better about that quote. Um, simply because uh, victims of racism, you know, they they always are able to point out, you know, a good white person, if you will, um, you know, uh, and it's easier for people in that quote unquote dominant caste, you know, to identify as a good one as as opposed to victims, um, which are all looked at as the same. Um, they, you know, there are certain stereotypes attributed to victims. They all steal, they're all lazy, they're all ignorant, you know, things like that. Um, and this isn't assumed by the the uh, the dominant cast, the dominant cast members. Um, the quote is: um, "They were objects to be controlled. They were no longer people. They were numbers." And um, I thought that that were uh, the word numbers. Um, if she was going to compare them so much, she should have uh, used. Uh, the word niggers, um, if anything, I thought that would have fit. It's just my own personal preference. Um, I'm gonna, that was already spoken about. That was already spoken about. Uh, both Jews and African-American slaves were subject to medical experiments by dominant caste members, uh, in quotes, um, white supremacists. Um, and then um, she com- she continued to, she she talked about how the Jews were poisoned and murdered. But then she went into extensive detail on how African American slaves were were tortured and tormented and mutilated, castrated, uh, baseballs thrown at them, you know, things like that. And um, I agree with uh, um, Henry in Chicago and retired firefighter. You know, there's no comparison. I I, I do believe that the uh, the mistreatment of the Jews were wrong, but. It did only span eight years. You know, I wrote later that uh, that a lynching every three to four days for the first four decades of the 20th century. You know, um, I don't think uh, Jews were subject to to such treatment. Um, uh, American uh, an American culture of cruelty crept into the mind, I believe that was untrue. Uh, I believe that that this uh, America was built, excuse me, America was built on this cruelty, and it was just after America was built on the cruelty, they just turned that cruelty into such games, you know, as throwing baseballs and such. Um, she tried to compare um, Germans I mean, uh, the, the Jews from in Nazi Germany being lashed 25 times to slaves being lashed up to 400 times. Um, I feel that, that is a, there is a huge difference in 25 lashes and 400 lashes. And I feel that, you know, that comparison alone is an insult, an, an insult to my ancestors. My great-great-grandmother was also uh, like Henry Unort. Henry in Chicago, I'm sorry. She was also a slave. My mother met her, you know, and and she was 
told stories about things that she went through. Um, a Nazi selecting a, a trusted cap, captive to report um, uh, uh, plans of escape. I thought this was also uncomparable to slavery because I think they learned this um, tactic from slavery, you know, because I, if I'm to be informed correctly, Nazi Germany did study America. Um, I think they exercised some of the things they learned. Um, and also it's uncomparable because laws were written to restrict slaves from wearing specific types of garments. And a Jewish woman was able to legally purchase a fur coat that would not be you know, acceptable in, in in slavery. Also, Madame LaRue, I was disappointed that she went into all these details about um, the horrors the horrors that white men um, inflicted on slaves, but she just kind of glazed over Madame LaRue with no details of her mutilation of her captives. Um, and um, just a few details on her. She, uh, she, she, she also performed mutilations, um, sex changes. Uh, she gouged out the eyes of people. She she filled uh, their mouths with uh, excrement and sewed them up. She flayed skin. And uh, one occasion, she uh, broke a lady's bones and reset them, to, so she, so that lady would appear as a crab. Um, and I wish she would go into detail on Madame LaRue because it seems as if she's focusing all of the uh, the gory details on white men as as to avoid uh, or is it just keep the keep the blame directed towards them and um I'd like it to be in this book that you know white women um that, that participated and enjoyed the mistreatment of, of black people. Uh thank you, that's all I have on me my line. Much obliged, uh, Mo in Dallas. Very important point. We talk about that frequently uh, in terms of white women being excluded uh, from culpability. We don't think of them as being white supremacists. It's the man. Amber Geiger crops in there from time to time causing a problem, but absolutely, and has always been the case. Appreciate that from uh, Mo in Dallas. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, uh, should be with us as well. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Good evening, Thomas. Good evening to all the callers. Um, man, I really. This one, this meeting here was the worst one yet. Um, the poor Jews. Um, I hate the comparison between black people and the Europeans who practice Judaism. In 1933, the census equivalent in Germany, um, the most populous Western European nation, said they had 505,000 Jews. How did six million die in the Holocaust? Um, she compared their labor to our labor. The Jews cooked pastry and cleared land. Mind you, Montana is larger than Germany. It's a little little speck on the map. It's nothing. 
Um, the Holocaust lasted from 1941 until 1945, according to white history. Um, our enslavement lasted from 1619 to 1864. So it's not a comparison. Um, Brooks Brothers made the slave clothes here in America. They just filed for bankruptcy last week, by the way. Um, started by a Jew, Henry Sands Brooks, you know, in 1818. So Jews prospered from our enslavement um, as well. Um, then when black people make this argument of the poor Jews, they leave out the comparison of what happened afterwards, after slavery, after the Holocaust. Jews were never educated by Germans again. We've been educated by white people since. Jews were given reparations. We weren't given anything. Jews were allowed to steal a country and call it their own. We, we don't got nothing. You know, the, the state sanctioned protection they get worldwide. It's no Jew codes. It's no Jew crow. You know, it's no suntown, sundown towns that don't allow Jews. It's no redlining. In fact, they own most of the banks that did that. So I don't see the comparison. And, um, you know, we were at war with these white people. They were stealing our land. Look at the Homestead Act. You know, the Jews were never at war with the Nazis. They were dyeing their hair, changing their names, hiding in attics, trying to fit in to the, their society because they could because they're white. We can't fit into white society. Um, Jewish women, get, she said, got locked up, forced to eat with the pigs until her freedom, her liberation, because she had the nerve to flaunt this fur coat. Black women would routinely be raped, just walking down the side of the road. You know, pregnant black women be lynched to have a baby cut out. Alligator babies, like none of this happened to them. Uh, and it's not a fair, or it's not a, it's not a earnest or equitable comparison to have that put us in the same category. Jews are white, and from what I understand, they didn't want to be white. And that's, that was their problem. They didn't want to conform to white society. They didn't want, they wanted to stay different. Um, so just a terrible comparison. Um, this is as bad as comparing the white supremacist system we live in to the Indian caste system. You know, like this is, this is even worse than that. And I'll be one lucky. Much obliged. Thomas in New York. Uh, I think a number of folks over the, what is this, four or I guess about a month that we've been reading this book uh, have pointed out that they just don't think these uh, comparisons are accurate for a myriad of, of reasons. Uh, the amount of time uh, that black people have been mistreated and the results of what happened, not having a so-called area of land or country, as they say, like, Let's talk about that all the time. Interrogate those metaphors, comparisons. Very important. Uh, the emails. Let's see. Okay. All right. First email. Uh, greetings, Gus. Cal's broadcast 2000. Nine, technically, Dr. Peggy McIntosh briefly uses the terms colorism and caste 
at the 103 mark of the broadcast. It caught my attention since it is one of the few times I've heard the word cased used on a cow's broadcast other than this book club. Not one of our popular terms. Uh, Pillar number seven. Terror as enforcement. Cruelty as a means of control. Number one. But more important, it misrepresents violence as merely damage to one's property, presumably rare and against the interest of the owner, when it was actually a terror mechanism that was a part of the regular maintenance of an unnatural institution, part of the calculus of American slavery. The sexualized, sadistic aspect of white terrorism must also be included in this analysis, this was reinforced for me by the cow's broadcast, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men by Thomas A. Foster. So wacky to think that was almost a year ago. That book just came out and whew, where did the, the Rona, that's where the year went. But yeah, he was on the cows. Uh, Thomas Foster. Torture may also trigger neuroconnections stimulating pleasure centers within the brain. Cal's book read Wisdom of Psychopaths Kevin Dutton, yep remember that one uh, is torture not only a means to an end control, power but also an end in itself through the experience of pleasure by racist man, racist woman and racist child question Number two, slave driver, the head Negro. I have heard this phrase often, was not aware that it refers to a U.S. black slave. Pillar number eight, inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. Number one, most trivial interaction has has to be managed, unlike dominant case passengers who climbed aboard paid their bus fare and took a seat black passengers had to climb up pay their fare then get off the bus so as not to pollute or disturb the white section this is evidence that in order to maintain the system of racism white supremacy continual maintenance and refinement is required thus it seems illogical that whites who practice racism are unaware unconscious or ignorant about racism I've come to a similar conclusion uh, let's see other folks that wrote in uh, I'll give some of my notes and then I'll share what they said too uh, so some of my notes I think she had one section from last week that I forgot to say a word on She talked about Okay. She talks about Gone with the Wind. Uh she said that uh talk about obese black characters in film. Uh Hattie McDaniel was commended for her role as Mammy, a solicitous and obesely desexed counterpoint to Scarlett O'Hara, the feminine ideal in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind. The Mammy character was more devoted to her white family than to her own, willing to fight black soldiers to protect her white 
enslaver. I thought that was important because that is a part of our conditioning, even though that's in a fictionalized movie. We are trained to support, identify with whites, be in conflict with fight black people. That's been conditioned uh, in us over centuries. Right. Super important even was reminded of that line exactly this week when they were talking about uh, John Price, black male shot and killed, tasered, shot and killed. And then they went to find some alleged social media posts where he said racism wasn't that bad and he had plenty of white friends and white police officer friends and all the rest of it. He loved white women feverish. And said, I see no count coon. That's what we got. here. I'm not going to celebrate. No, uh, Mr. Price. Or I'm, he's dead. I'm not, not celebrating. I'm not going to march or protest or send his family, you know, sweet potato pie or anything. Forget him. We get trained to think that way. Even if it is an authentic post, that's how we have been conditioned since the time of Hattie McDaniel and long before. Let's see to this week. Uh, she has a lot of in a book that's talking about torture and rape and terrorism. She has a lot of like just confusing rhetoric that sounds like that loving and we're just going to hug and hold hands and be friends. She says at the beginning of chapter six, which is dehumanization and stigma against it is a war against truth. Racism is about lies against what the eye can see and what the heart could feel if allowed to do so on its own. That's the type of thing where I'm again reminded cowbell got a white parent or married to a white man. She comes, she said all this about cast where actors in a play and we just get a script and we're born into this and it's not through our own. She says all that lame, incorrect language. And then she'll come back and say things like to dehumanize another being is not merely to declare that someone is not human and it does not happen by accident. Well, if it's not happening accidentally, that means someone did this deliberately, willfully, intentionally repeatedly with the case of whites it takes energy and reinforcement to deny what is self-evident and white people do that all the time time and energy in practicing racism Uh, moving forward again she says dehumanize the group and you have quarantined them from the masses you choose to elevate and have programmed everyone even some of the targets of dehumanization to no longer believe what their eyes can see again really it's not some all of the non-white people targets of white supremacy racism end up having that same type of conditioning that's why we have so much anti-blackness in conflict with other black people that's why you might have a black person even though it's fictionalized fight another black person to maintain the system of racism white supremacy no name calling Uh, let's see she continues dehumanization distances not only the out group from the in group are we talking about white people distances white people from non-white people but those in the in-group white people from their own humanity. I want to say this again. 
white supremacy racism is the only crime where they lose the criminal somehow loses his her humanity they don't talk about that with bill cosby they don't say oh man bill cosby you know he lost his own humanity and he was a victim in this they don't say that when they get to talking about super predators they don't say oh man the super predator they're a victim in all this too they don't say that when they were talking about central park wilding white woman raped in new york it wasn't all man these young kids they violated themselves lost their own humanity they were dogs and wolves rapists oh these are minors oh we didn't even get the right culprit oh well they they could have done it yeah now only racists they're victims in this crime too that's hogwash they're damaged in all this too their humanity is lost <laughs> cowbell uh she says this a few times uh, where she'll have lines like the United States blamed African-Americans for many of its social ills. That does not make logical sense. Uh, for one, black people were being mistreated and blamed for things when there was no United States, when you just had so-called colonies, unless I've been misinformed. That's for one. For two, who are you talking about when you say the United States? That's what I mean. Like there will be lots of sentences in this book. There's such a deliberate, willful effort to avoid identifying white people as the problem. Don't want to upset the white readers and have them think that they might be guilty of practicing racism. There's such a strong effort to avoid that you end up with a lot of just nonsense sentences. And many people talk like that. That's the way that Reverend Jeremiah Wright spoke. America mistreats black people. Same thing. That's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Are you talking about a piece of land that mistreats black people? Who are you talking about? Make it plain. Make it logical. Let's see. There we go again. Captors. Not white people. Force their hostages to do the heaviest work of inhuman exertion while withholding food from those whose labors enrich the captors delectable negro i feel like that book much better job and certainly more detailed in talking about all the different ways controlling food who's able to eat punishment for food all of that even consumption of the negro body explicitly or metaphorically much better that's why vincent woodard's book in my top 10 not this one uh let's see Again, now a contrast because she goes so quickly, you get these tropes of obese and super fat black people while they're being starved. Even right now, 2020 being starved because they talk about having uh, obese and undernourished people because you're in a food desert and you're eating fast food and Cheetos and food that doesn't have it or edible items that's not really food or We'll have real food available and just don't give you any of it. Give you about the same thing. Mash, sugar, a few rocks and see if you can subsist off that. Maybe you'll kill a few rats to round out your diet. Uh, Let's see. Thought great job. uh, You are pointing out in my view, there is a heteronormative slant to this book. Uh, that 
rethinking Rufus talks about as though only a white male would only rape a female slave. It's like, it's not even the realm of possibility that a white male could rape a male slave. And again, a lot of this rape was not raping of women, unless you think of a 14 year old as a woman. A lot of this was child rape. So much of this is inaccurate and sanitizing. There's no thought as Mo and Dallas mentioned that it could be a white woman raping one of these black female slaves or raping a male slave or raping a child. That's not even comprehended. That's just, which is standard for these type of works that'll be celebrated. Um, and again, a lot of this was even, uh, well, I won't say a lot of it, but some of this was discussed even in, uh, Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. Uh, uh, she says at the depths of their dehumanization, both Jews and African-Americans were subjected to gruesome medical experimentation at the hands of that one. Even that one couldn't be white supremacists. The Nazis are white supremacists. Yes. Marion J. Sims, a white supremacist. Yes, that one couldn't be white supremacist. It's got to be dominant case physicians. Couldn't be white physicians there either. So I say there's so much willful effort to avoid being accurate, direct, precise in describing all of this. One other point I want to make out, I'm I'm phrasing it that way. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson in the Black Agenda Report article uh, is described as a dilettante. I had to look that one up to even see uh, what it meant. Uh, make sure I'm even pronouncing it correctly. Uh, let's see. Oh, my. Make sure I get my dictionary here. Okay. Yes. So the article she is. didn't even find it in the dictionary. I had to go look it up the other way. Got it. Dilettante, D-I-L-E-T-T-A-N-T-E, a person who cultivates an area of interest such as the arts without real commitment or knowledge. It's not my conclusion that Isabel Wilkerson lacks knowledge about white supremacy racism. I don't think you could write The Warmth of Other Sons and be ignorant about white supremacy racism. Even with the books that she's read, if you've read Medical Apartheid, Ian Honey Lopez, White by Law, Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, White by Law, uh, who is it? Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told. You've read all those books and some more. You're not exactly ignorant about white supremacy, racism or this subject matter. I don't think she's ignorant. I just cowbell. White editors money, whole lot of factors, but I don't think it's just that she is lacking information to accurately present this subject matter. I don't even think that's the goal, but I could be wrong. Uh, continuing Stanley Milgram. She mentioned that about control and people, the shocks are being administered and people just proceed. Uh, there's a book. I posted it that came out about five years ago. Uh, taking a look at that study, the author was interviewed on NPR in 2013 and again, lying uh, where 
It's been 60 years since that experiment. White people have not been able to duplicate the results of that study. And she reports that they kind of lied. They used the word fudged the results a little bit to make it seem more dramatic and that people proceeded and just continued to shock people. That is uh, seems like it might not be true. You can check out the book Behind the Shock Machine by Gina Perry. Uh, if you want more information about that, but that is much talked about experiment. Even I think they got movies on that Stanley Milgram. Anyway, uh, let's see. Making violence and mockery seem mundane and amusing is a hugely important aspect of white supremacy. Racism. They enjoy practicing racism. That's why the racist jokes. We talk about that. That's why that is, is such a crucial component and long running uh, where you'll have these little ditties being passed down for decades and what have you and the menstrual show and all that. Uh, let's see. Gelded. I was another one. I didn't know what that word meant. She was talking about an escapee in Louisiana. And it said a warden in Louisiana reported that he had just taken custody of a runaway noted that he had been lately gelded, meaning castrated words. Important. Uh, anything else? Get in. James C. Cobb uh, was referenced uh, in the section of the text uh, in pillar number eight, uh, where Mississippi. Uh, let's see. In 1948, a black tenant farmer in Louise, Mississippi, was severely beaten by two whites. Said he got too big because he asked for a receipt after paying his water bill. Got too big for his britches. James C. Cobb. Uh, that nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Guest on the cows. 2014 should be in the archives. Like I said, many books we've read where I'm like, oh wow, we've talked to a lot of these folks. This is one. Sometimes that'll be evidence that it's a great book. Not the case here. This is really, really lame. Uh, before we get to the second audio, uh, actually, might have to wait until we do the second audio. Let's see. Yes, let us do the second audio segment and then uh, we'll have ample time if folks have other comments, questions to share, including the rest of our emails. So we're picking up at the beginning of part four. Uh, this is Isabel Wilkerson, The Origins of Our Discontents, Context of White Supremacy, section number two. Part four, the tentacles of caste. Brown eyes versus blue eyes. The third graders fidgeted in their seats and rested their chins on their folded forearms as their teacher, Mrs. Elliot, told them the rules of a class experiment she wanted to try with them. This was in the farm town of Riceville, Iowa, in the late 1960s, and all of the children— the descendants of immigrants from Germany and Scotland and Ireland and Scandinavia had roughly the same skin color as their teacher, and from afar, little by which to distinguish one from another. But after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the turmoil that followed beyond the cornfields that surrounded them, Jane Elliott decided she needed to do something out of the ordinary to teach her dominant caste students how it felt to be judged on the basis of an arbitrary physical trait, the color of their eyes. She announced to the children that they would do things differently that day, 
she laid out arbitrary stereotypes for a neutral trait that, for now, in her classroom, would put a student with that trait in essentially the lowest caste. She told the children that brown-eyed people are not as good as blue-eyed people, that they are slower than blue-eyed people, not as smart as blue-eyed people, that until she said otherwise, the brown-eyed students would not be allowed to drink from the water fountain, that they had to use paper cups instead. She told the children that the brown-eyed people could not play with the blue-eyed people on the playground and would have to come in early, but that the blue-eyed students would get to stay out longer for recess. The students looked confused at first. Then, in a matter of minutes, a caste hierarchy formed. It started as soon as the teacher told the children to open their books to a certain page to begin their lesson. Everyone ready? Mrs. Elliot asked the class. One little girl was still turning the pages in her book to get to the right one. The teacher looked at the girl, her eyes judging and impatient. Everyone but Lori, Mrs. Elliot said with exasperation. Ready, Lori? A blue-eyed boy interjected. She's a brown-eyed, he said, having caught on instantly to the significance of what had never mattered for as long as he had known the girl. When lunchtime approached, the teacher told the blue-eyed children they would get to eat first and would be permitted a second helping. But the brown-eyed children weren't allowed to. They might take too much, the teacher told them. The brown-eyed children looked downcast and defeated. One boy got into a fight at recess because one of the blue-eyed boys had called him a name. What did he call you? The teacher asked him. Brown eyes, the boy said, tears at the surface of those eyes. An otherwise neutral trait had been converted into a disability. The teacher later switched roles, and the blue-eyed children became the scapegoat cast, with the same cast behavior that had arisen the day before between these artificially constructed upper and lower casts. Seems when we were down on the bottom, everything bad was happening to us, one girl said. The way you're treated, you felt like you didn't want to try to do anything, said another. Classroom performance fell for both groups of students during the few hours that they were relegated to the subordinate cast. The brown-eyed students took twice as long to finish a phonics exercise the day that they were made to feel inferior. I watched my students become what I told them they were, she told NBC News decades later. When the brown-eyed children were put on a pedestal and made dominant, Elliot told the network she saw little wonderful brown-eyed white people become vicious, ugly, nasty, discriminating, domineering people in the space of 15 minutes. With the blue-eyed children scapegoated and subordinated, I watched brilliant blue-eyed white Christian children become timid and frightened and angry and unable to learn in the space of 15 minutes, she said. If you do that with a whole group of people for a lifetime, she said, you change them psychologically. You convince those who are analogous to the brown-eyed people that they are superior, that they are perfect, that they have the right to rule. 
and you convince those who take the place of the blue-eyed students that they are less than. If you do that for a lifetime, what do you suppose that does to them? Chapter 10 Central Miscasting I arrived in London on a slate gray morning in December 2017 for a major conference on the topic that had begun to consume my waking hours, cast. Unlike many events I attend, I was going there to listen, to gain a greater understanding of that which I did not know, rather than to speak myself. I would be surrounded by people who studied what seemed to be the missing codes to human ruptures. The issue of caste was, to my mind, the basis of every other ism. These researchers were now my intellectual tribe. These were people who could see past the hierarchies and false divisions that undermined the species. The auditorium was packed with sociologists, political scientists, anthropologists, graduate students, and I could barely contain myself as I took a seat in the front. A woman who appeared to be of East Asian descent removed her jacket and nodded. There was no flinching or scooting away. There were no quizzical side-eyes, as might happen in a similar setting in the States. I was feeling better already. I took a measure of the crowd and noticed that, here at the crossroads of the world, there was no one else at the conference who looked like me. Most everyone appeared to be descended from South Asia, meaning India, or from Europe, primarily the United Kingdom. Not one person of African descent, from what I could tell, only two or three Americans, all of them white and based in Europe or India. I alone had crossed the Atlantic for the single day of attempting to understand the forces that had shaped the course of my life and those of my ancestors and of many other people before me. While I had studied the unspoken caste structure in the United States, I had not yet spent time on the original caste system of India. As with many conversations about injustice, the talks turned almost exclusively on the victims and consequences of societal ills, rather than on their origins. Panel after panel looked through a different lens at the suffering of the lowest castes, which in India have been called the scheduled castes, or, shocking to American ears, the backward castes. I began to see parallels with America, heard stories that could have been taken from the headlines in the United States about African Americans and indigenous people. Both countries had abolished legal discrimination, and yet, according to the panels and keynotes, Dalits were being brutalized by Indian authorities, as African Americans were being brutalized by police in the United States. And a people known as the Adivasi were fighting to retain their lands and culture in India, as have the indigenous people in America. Two different countries, oceans apart, had found parallel ways to contain the subordinate groups within them. I could close my eyes, change the names as I listened to these reports, and feel that I was back in the United States. Another Dalit murdered by police, 
another Adivasi murdered by the police, a woman said, Why do we not face up to the outrage of state-sanctioned violence? At the first break, I was anxious to get a copy of the papers the scholars had read that morning. I had decided early on that I was not going to lean on any recognition that might accrue to me from my first book. In fact, I purposely kept a quiet profile so as not to attract attention to this new project that was then still germinating in my head. I was there on the strength of my own personal presentation, there to be accepted for what people could see. A well-dressed woman, an American, an African-American, well-spoken and focused. I went up to a professor, an Indian woman, an upper caste woman, as I would come to realize, who seemed to be in charge. I asked if I might get a copy of the papers that were presented. Would they be made available? She said no. You'll have to wait. Why do you need a copy? I'm a writer, and I've come all the way from America just for this, I told her. I thought that this level of dedication might impress her. It did not. She directed me to an Englishman who was her senior, and it seemed that even here among people who studied caste, there might be traditional hierarchy at work. The woman was then pulled away by the press of people, and the Englishman was swamped as well. As in any human grouping, there were cliques and fraternities of people who had known one another or worked together, and rather than an open conference, this was starting to feel like a family reunion to which I had been admitted by accident. At the lunch break, I spotted a gentleman who was sitting alone, across from other men who were talking to one another. He was Indian, like three-quarters of the attendees, but he was different. He was carrying a black briefcase, all business and purposeful amid the backpacks surrounding us. Like me, he seemed an outsider among insiders. I felt an immediate kinship. His name, he told me as I took a seat next to him, was Tushar. He was born in Bengal and was a geologist now living in London. He was more formally dressed than everyone else, blue Oxford shirt collar peeking above his gray tweed jacket, a side part in his thick gray hair, his eyes smiling in quarter moons on his warm, kind face as he talked. According to the caste system, he said, as if informing me of the status of someone he once knew, I belong to the second upper caste, the warrior-soldier caste. I looked at this man who was not much taller than I, small-boned, narrow-shouldered, gentle of face, self-effacingly modest in bearing, and wondered on what planet would this man be seen as a natural-born warrior. Here was living proof of the miscasting of caste. This had long ago registered to him as well, and he took the caste ascription with so little solemnity that he was not at first able to give the exact spelling of the caste, or in Sanskrit, the Varna, to which he was born. I did not yet know the four Varnas at the time, or that castes were even called Varnas, so I asked him to write it down for me. He wrote the words Katriya, 
and then Kayastras in my notepad. I think it is Kshatriya, he said, as if to disregard its significance by misremembering how to spell or pronounce it. It's an issue not well understood. I was raised with social privilege. You are told you are second upper caste, the ruling caste, and that you are to be happy that there are many below you. But as a young boy on the way to school, he passed the beggars on the streets asking for money and people crying out that they had no food. His own family sat down to meals with four or five courses, dal and amaranth, mutton and chutney, while less well-off families subsisted on rice and potatoes, and those beneath them on even less. It was hard to enjoy one's privilege when so few people had it. When he was eleven or twelve, he began asking why his family had so much and others so little. Don't discuss about these things, the elders told him. Do your studies. Caste is created by God. The afternoon sessions were about to begin, discussions of Dalit protests and corporate encroachment on the land of the Adivasis. Tushar and I headed back to the auditorium, each of us on our respective missions. As this was England, there was a break for tea, and I gravitated to Tushar again in the crowd. He looked forlorn and impatient now. They haven't answered my questions, he said. All my life I have lived with this. I am looking for answers about how this began. I will stay to hear more. He asked me why I had come all the way from America for this conference. I told him I wanted to understand caste, because I lived with it too. I told him most people don't think of America as having a caste system, but it has all the hallmarks of one. He listened and did not judge. Caste defines everything in India, he said. It is the Hindu religion that maintains the caste system. That is why Ambedkar became a Buddhist. It was not an escape for him. It was a liberation. Casteism is another form of racism. God knows how long it will take for people to let it go. I'm wondering, then, are you still a Hindu? I asked him. I am atheist, he said. No religion since I was thirteen. What does your family think of that? They think you are born a Hindu, you die a Hindu. You do not escape caste. But I believe what I believe. Who cares what they think? He appeared to have given some consideration to what I had told him about the hierarchy in America. It had puzzled him and intrigued him. If you have caste in the U.S., he asked me, where are you in the caste system? That is the question that many Indians ask, in one form or another, upon meeting a fellow Indian. It is a line of inquiry that those in the lowest caste know is coming and that they dread. Indians will ask the surname, the occupation of one's father, the village one is from, the section of the village that one is from, to suss out the caste of whoever is in front of them. They will not rest until they have uncovered the person's rank in the social order. Tushar had waited quite some time to ask me this, 
and would not likely have done so or thought of it at all if I hadn't mentioned caste in America. The idea seemed a wonderment to him. He seemed to want to know how things worked and where I fit into what, to him, was an alien hierarchy. I had not expected this question. Nobody had ever asked me before. How could he not know? Was he merely being polite? Hollywood and the news media have exported demeaning images of African Americans for generations, which means our reputations often precede us, and not for the better. So I was, in fact, strangely grateful for his giving me an option. Even without the language of caste, most any American would know the ranking of the group to which I was born. But here was a man born upper caste in India and a skeptic of inherited status, seeing me as an individual who might be of any rank. He was not putting me in a box, nor making the assumptions that I labor under every day. His question was liberating in its innocent lack of judgment, yet it brought to mind Dr. King's epiphany nearly sixty years before in India. Well, I told Tushar, in America, I am assigned to the lowest caste, the American untouchables. I am an American Dalit, and I am living proof that caste is artificial. He gave a look of recognition. My answer was further confirmation of what he considered a disease. We would have other conversations in the following months whenever I visited London. He would share more of the absurdities he had witnessed in the caste system back home. He remembered the Dalit students whose exams went ungraded. The tests were not marked, he said, because the teacher was upper caste and would not touch the paper touched by a Dalit. So you laugh or you cry. He told me about the upper caste woman in an office where he once worked. She would get up from her desk and walk the length of the office, down the hall and around the corner, to ask a Dalit to get her water. The jug was there next to her desk, he said. The Dalit had to come to where she was sitting and pour it for her. It was beneath her dignity to get the water herself from the desk beside her. This is the sickness of caste. He recalled the heartbreak of the Indian fixation on skin color, which was caste within caste, and the hatred of darker Indians, who tend to be lower caste, but not always, and how they suffer for this accident of fate, as do African Americans and other people of color in the United States and in other parts of the world. His older sister happened to be darker than most of his siblings, and when she reached courting age, she was told she would have to boil milk and skim the skin from the boiled milk and spread it on her face prior to sleep every night before the young men came to interview her for marriage. Imagine, he said, week after week, night after night. She knew she would be rejected, and she would close the door to her room and cry. I was twelve. I remember to this day. She got married, but that's not the point. She should not have to go through all of this, the cruelty of it. We had both been miscast, each in our own way, and could see through the delusion 
that had shaped and restricted us from the other side of our respective caste systems. We had broken from the matrix and were convinced that we could see what others could not, and that others could see it too, if they could awaken from their slumber. We had defied our caste assignments. He was not a warrior or ruler. He was a geologist. I was not a domestic. I was an author. He had defied his caste from on high and I from below, and we had met at this moment in London at our own Maginot line of equality, standing on different sides of the same quest to understand the forces that had sought to define us, but had failed. Really lame book. Incidentally, if you have a good memory, this is not the first time we've heard a book use the Maginot line as a reference. Uh, that is a little bit of World War II vernacular. vernacular. Uh, Maginot line is like a military enforcement uh, that was let's just say, used during World War II. Uh, it was referenced in the war. Oh, excuse me, the Bluest Eye, the Bluest Eye. Toni Morrison, way back in 2011, she has one of the black characters who's a bigger person named the Maginot Line. But anyway, uh, I will get to one of our written comments and then get to the folks on the line. Uh, we had a different listener write in his written commentary. Good evening, Gus. I have a few thoughts on tonight's audio segments. Pillar number six, when it was stated by the author, the Nazis actually calculated the number of calories needed for the Jews to perform certain tasks. It emphasized it even more to me of how scientific and dedicated racists can be when practicing racism. Next, another anecdote about how black people weren't allowed to show emotions when sold away from their families. Like I stated, I believe a lot of the act of trying to downplay emotions has a negative impact on our overall health. Pillar number seven, Miss Wilkerson gave many anecdotes about methods and tactics that whites deployed in America against black people. But when she gives examples of India, there aren't as many or even detailed, which further illustrates my point that the U.S. and India shouldn't be compared as equals, or at least in this text. There was a great point made. Subjugated groups often were forced to inflict punishment or participate in the mistreatment of each other. That causes a great deal in confusion amongst non-white victims, even up until today. Taking the focus off of whites, the more powerful and responsible party, and it shifts the focus onto the fellow non-white victims. John Price. Pillar number eight, Miss Wilkerson, said that the Jews endured Hitler's regime for 12 years. That's another reason I don't think it's correct to compare racism, white supremacy in the U.S. to Nazi Germany in terms of them being the same or equal. Thought I heard that before. Uh, chapter number nine. Jane Elliott admitted white supremacists. Her brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment hasn't made a single white person stop practicing racism. To my knowledge, we asked her that question specifically when she was a guest on the program, and she had no 
evidence to the contrary. Not sure why her work is referenced as much as it gets referenced. It was in the middle of the playoffs, like we're at the finals and everything, right? Go Lakers, LeBron James, Miami Heat, woo! They stopped all of that. Forget LeBron James, eh, let all that go for a minute. I want to take a moment to introduce educator and scholar Jane Elliott. Let's hear about the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment that she conducted 60 years ago. She's talking about that was uh, in the wake of Dr. King's assassination in 68. I mean, I'm I'm cheating it a little bit, but I mean, basically 60 years ago and no evidence that this is effective. But we got to talk about this in the middle of a brand new book just published literally a couple days ago. We got to stop and refresh as though this just happened. We've never talked to her before. Wow. Jane Elliott. That's what I mean about this is a really lame book. Are you really telling me you got people in 2020 who've never heard of Jane Elliott before? She's not like she's talking about a cased system, right? 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh again for folks if you just started listening to the cows right or you just found this episode and who is this coon in here talking about all this and who was he again so jane elliott admitted white supremacist admitted that on our broadcast she's been a guest here at least Three times, Ian Hane Lopez, guest on the program. We read Medical Apartheid in our book club before. We read Edward Baptist, The Half, the half Has Never Been Told in our book club. Uh, the book it was re- referenced last week, Matthew Fry Jacobson. Uh, his book about the immigrants who came in and became white lots and lots of the references that she's talked about either they've been guests on the program or we've covered them in detail in addition to reading her book in the book club the warmth of other sons so yeah gusty and or our listeners should be pretty qualified to give a thought or three folks who dialed in if you have a hand up line should be open proceed Oh, let's get folks we missed totally. Yes, sir. Let's get with okay. our caller in New Jersey. I heard all of you folks, but making sure we get folks that we missed totally. Don't wait till the last minute. Uh, if you have a hand up and we missed you completely, uh, caller in New Jersey, proceed. Hey, how you doing? I, I came in a little late. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the reading, and it comes across as um, more or less for the victims to be understanding of the um the people who does the victimizing um even with the uh jane elliott section you know when they talked about the uh young uh race soldiers and training so it's just more of the you know just be a little bit understanding um also you know you know be patient um with the comparison of the untouchables in India. I mean, I'm I'm trying to wait for the conclusion. Um, what what has become of the untouchables? I mean, have they reached equality? 
Um, you know, what is the uh, end result? I mean, have that society changed? And if that society changed, is the author saying this will be the end result of um, the end of caste in America? Um, but again, it's just more of um, having a greater understanding and empathy for um, white races. Um, that's how it's, you know, coming across. So, you know, um, you know, and I'm listening, you know, I'm trying not to be persuaded by, you know, Gus, the host, your opinion or the callers, but um, clearly um, that's, that's my conclusion um, with uh, reading this, this uh, particular work, this particular book. Much obliged, caller in New Jersey. My apologies if I'm spoiling it for you or other listeners. If this, you know, maybe this would be your favorite book of the year of the Rona. Best thing you've ever read. But Gus T is on here talking cruel about, a, you know, what did they call They called it a, a tour de force. Whatever that means. Uh, much obliged uh, caller in New Jersey. Uh, I heard retired firefighter Henry in Chicago, all the other folks with a hand up. Uh, feel free. Just if we missed you totally, go ahead and get a hand up. Don't wait till the last moment. Uh, everybody else, if you have comments to share, feel free. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. Uh, just a, just a thought that I had in my, in, in my mind, uh, did we ever ask Miss Elliot on where did she get permission uh, about in, imposing her experiment on the white children? And if so, what was her answer? I don't remember the whole setup. Um, it should be in the archives. Uh, her particularly for that question, her first two visits from 2010 to see if she let the parents know in advance that she was going to do this or she sprung this on them that would cause that sort of thing would cause a riot in 2020 like do what you did what to my little like man they would have her they call it tarred and feathered but yes i do not right. recall if she let them know in advance they they because they fight they fire they fire teachers for what she did i just read where they fired a white woman that uh showed up to class with with a with a mask on that says black lives matter <laughs> You know, so you know, I'm just thinking about that. But uh, yeah, uh, with with this this class this caste system in India, uh, is she's going to ever report on Mahatma Gandhi? And uh, you know, he became globally known for not caste. <laughs> he he became globally known for uh you know uh, uh, uh his uh activities into uh i guess countering the system of racism white supremacy attempts anyway uh to whereas uh the reverend dr martin luther king was motivated enough to uh visit india uh, himself and uh mrs king uh i'm just wondering on on if she makes any comments on mahatma gandhi 
I think he's been mentioned before in the text, uh, but we'll have to see if he comes up uh, mm-hmm. again. We've got quite a bit of reading left to do, so I suspect we'll probably hear his name again. But she has mentioned him a, t- a few times uh, all earlier in the text. She didn't associate anything, any any of his activities uh, with racism, white supremacy? Absolutely. Like I said, she did mention him before, but it was briefly. She oh, didn't she spend did. a oh, long okay. Okay. time talking about him. And I suspect because it was brief that she'll, she's probably going to mention him again as we continue going because we've got more than a half a book to read. But, yeah, she did mention him and his anti-racist yeah. activities briefly once before. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Henry in Chicago. All right. Um, before the uh, before the second recording, I think I heard you mention him. <clears throat> if 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 not, then uh, please correct me. But I think you mentioned that James C. Cobb's was the author of this nonviolent stuff would get you killed. Uh, actually, that was Charles Cobb who was the author of that. Uh, but two different people uh, between James Cobb and Charles Cobb. Um, in, in regard to the brown-eyed, blue-eyed uh, test outside of, you know, not producing uh, non-racist white people, uh, it also confuses uh you know the uh the 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 logical meaning of of racism because with this experiment it basically takes away the the historical uh the historical meaning of it and who are the creators of 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 race and racism and that's white people so you know her assigning blue-eyed children and brown-eyed children it, it's like, it's almost like anybody can be a racist and you know logically we know that you know, the only races are white people because they're the ones that came up with this system. Um, Ms. Wilkerson meeting the Indian woman who presented and then kind of uh, shunned her away and directed her to an Englishman who was her senior um, kind of makes me think that she probably was like her Indian counterpart because of the fact that Maybe her presentation wasn't hers, and this is why she directed Ms. Wilkerson to the English Englishman, because of the fact that maybe that's his work. Uh, so uh, same thing with, with this book, you know, because I'm still, still wondering, because I agree with you, Gus, in the last recording uh, where you said uh, she is not that much confused about racism for her to write a book like, you know, The Warmth of the Suns. Um, she can't be that confused about racism. I mean, you know, we all have some sort of confusion, but she she's definitely less confused uh, actually before uh, this book. So I'm wondering if this was purposely done. You know, I don't I don't think this was uh, VGQ on her part. Um, and also the, the the last part about her and the Indian guy, who you know, I guess you can call it a bond. Uh, but, you know, that too kind of minimizes the impact of, well, she calls it caste, I call it racism, but um, 
you know, the thing about it was is that, you know, when she had mentioned that they had defied our cast assignments and, you know, you can't defy a system that you live in, you know, um, if you're non-white, then you're non-white in the system of racism. Uh, I don't care what you say or what you think, you know, your reality is that you are a non-white black woman, a uh, black female. So, um, there's no defying that. And it, and it basically kind of just individualizes the system of racism, you know, which, you know, many of, many of us non-white black people, VGQ, get this idea that, you know, racism is just, you know, an individual thing and it's not a, not a system. But um, that's all I have under my life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Say all the time, strive for accuracy. That is right. Charles Cobb wrote the nonviolent stuff will get you killed. She mentions James C. Cobb. Those last names got me there. But yes, he is a white man, different person. Much obliged for the uh, correction. Uh, James C. Cobb. It looks like he wrote a lot of different books, white historian, but a way down south, the history of Southern identity might be worth checking. That's from 2007, a few others, but this is a white man. So. Maybe we'll see about chatting with him on the program. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, uh, commentary to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, back to the um, first reading, I left out one point, um, and that's justice. Uh, white female, Carolyn Burnett, I forget, Durhan, something like that, lied on Emmett Till, was identified and even interviewed, faced no jail time, nothing happened to her. None of the white people who participated in lynchings and have been identified in pictures have done any jail time. Um, they will drag a 100-year-old ex-Nazi soldier out of nursing home in handcuffs to stand trial and die in jail for the crimes they committed in 1941. Today, you know, it's no comparison. Um, the cash she describes in India, what happens if the lady who walks down the hall and turns the corner and finds the dark Indian and tells her to, to pour her some water from a glass that a water next to her desk, what happens if that dark Indian says no? You know, there's never discussion on what's the what's the penalty for this? They're gonna come beat her with a stick? Like what, what's gonna happen? And honestly, um, the Indians, their bombing caste system versus white supremacy from nineteen from eighteen fifty eight to nineteen forty seven, I believe, they were called the British Lodge. They were bowing down to every English-speaking, non-Hindu, Jesus-loving, Anglican white person who went through their country. I guarantee no white women were walking behind the highest casted Indian man or doing any of that stuff that their women do. It's no comparison. You know, they, they were bowing down to Queen Victoria. Like, they made her the Empress of India. Like, they... they their caste system is like they said, it's their religion because only a fool 
is going to go and pour this lady some water, unless there's a penny a penalty, like if it happened to us, there was a punishment that went with us saying no. So it was like, okay, you know, I don't want to get whipped. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to um, have someone have them harm my children or something today. Let me go do it. But what's the penalty? You know, and I'm with my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Heard that a few times. No penalty, or they don't seem to have a. What would be the correlate to the the coon dip? Don't think I didn't highlight that. I think Henry in Chicago uh, beat me to it, as they would say. But uh, the coon dip. Do they have a coon dip in India? Do they have a a lynching party where they're going to come out and, you know, box your ears and, you know, hang you up by your toenails if you don't pour that water right now? Get to it snappy. Um, Yeah, that would be appreciated. as I said, interrogate those comparisons, you know, make sure what's being compared is is accurate. Uh, other comments? We have any other folks with a hand up? Comments, questions to share? Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, the author wanting to retain a copy of the document from the copy of documents from the seminar um, uh, and the, the, the Indian woman that she approached asking her, you know, why she wanted the document. Um, uh, and she, she seemed to be confused as to why she was being, you know, being questioned on, you know, uh, on requesting information. As if it, it hasn't happened before, you know, and I, I believe being a victim of racism, um, you know, she's been questioned on why she's requesting information before. You know, um, I think it happened earlier in the book when she presented herself, you know, as a, as a reporter from the New York Times, and the gentleman in the restaurant was like, you know, who are you? And I'm not taking, you know, he didn't take her serious either. And, and um, you know, um, she she seems to be confused. Uh, and I think it's it's I think she's writing uh, the book uh, with with uh, with willful ignorance, you know, as she as, as if she doesn't understand. Um, um, that's just my conjecture, though. Um, the um, I think the uh, second the second upper cast uh, was it warrior male misremembering um, the name of of all of the cast. I think he was. Uh, practicing some form of, of misinformation with her. Um, I, I believe he, um, I just believe that, you know, um, they're well informed that they're of the caste hierarchy in their household. You know, he knew he, he was able to eat. I'm pretty sure he was informed of who not to eat. I think that was also um, him uh, practicing, you know, misinforming her um, because he uh, made a reference that casteism is another form of racism. Then he began. Then he proceeded to ask her, "What was her cast?" You know. Um, so, I, I don't think um, I don't think he was he was confused in what her cast position was. I think he was uh, wondering if she was going to be honest about it. And the um, the reference that um, he stepped down um, um, from his uh, status as a warrior 
cast member and stepped down into status as a warrior and became a geologist. And I stepped up from, uh, I was not a domestic, I was an author. Um, I just, I felt like, like there was there's some, I felt like that deserved a cowbell for some reason. Like, 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 you know, uh, because a lot of the times people, and I guess what you would consider higher caste, you step down to, to mingle with lowly caste members. But, you know, um, uh, in this book, but I don't think, um, I don't think it's common that a, a victim of racism could step up into a higher position, you know, to try to seek information and be accepted. I just, I thought that was interesting. That's all I have on you, my line. Hmm. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Strive for accuracy. Saying that for a while. Uh, I think I got the hands, the emails. I did check incidentally since a retired firefighter asked. So I was accurate. She has already mentioned Gandhi and his uh, anti-racist activities. However, he will not be mentioned again. We still have about 60% of the book left to go. His name is not going to come up again. Think of that what you will. Uh, so uh, getting in all of our comments uh, one of our investors wrote in chapter 9 brown eyes versus blue eyes Jane Elliott I watched brilliant blue eyed white Christian children become timid and frightened and angry and unable to learn in the space of 15 minutes Jane Elliott seems to be implying that she turned the children into racists how did she surmise that they were not racist before she began the exercise? Question. Does she have any evidence that the children did not practice racism after the exercise, either as children or adults? I'm going to get a hearty no, because we asked her directly if she had any evidence in all of her, you know, adult work and going out and doing this with other adults. And she said no. So I suspect she doesn't have any with the children either. Uh, and again, I think the question retired firefighter brought up, I suspect she would be barred, beaten, arrested, maybe all three if she tried to do that same thing now, 2020, even on a Zoom conference. Uh, let's see. Chapter 10. Uh, central miscasting. Number one, I went to a professor, an Indian woman, an upper cased woman who seemed to be in charge. I asked if I might get a copy of the papers that were presented. She directed me to an Englishman who was her senior and it seemed that even here among people who studied cased, there might be a traditional hierarchy at work. I thought that this was a revealing passage. I think the upper cased Indian woman knew that the ultimate authority was the Englishman who I assume is white. I think the author should have emphasized this in the text. That's a good point because you do have people who are Englishmen or English women who are, you know, the complexion of Lupita Nyong'o, right? Like they were born in London and all the rest. Like 
Englishmen should not just be, this was an Englishman and we know that's not enough information. That's not specific. Uh, let's see. Number two, Tushar, the geologist. Casteism is another form of racism. I thought this was an accurate statement and essentially the bottom line with regards to this text. Number three, Tushar. He recalled the heartbreak of the Indian fixation on skin color, which was cased within cased and the hatred of darker Indians who tend to be lower cased, but not always. I thought the author should have delved further into the reasons for this and whether this was true prior to British colonialism. That's another point I would bring up. It seems very minimized like the role of British colonialism uh, in all of this uh, and really their domination in this system uh, that, you know, maybe that'll change as we continue to read, but yeah. Uh, okay. And then the rest, we didn't get that far. So that's where we stopped today. Uh, I will only Jane Elliott. I think Thomas in New York said, wow, she's talking about social distancing in this book, which she is, even though we haven't got that far yet. This must have been written very recently. Like that's something that stood out and it should stand out. The mention of Jane Elliott in this text, just because I've seen her so much this year, seems like she's been on television every day. That stands out to me like, wow, I have to go and make sure I get my uh, honorary, well-meaning white people who are definitely not racist to talk in this book about casteism and hierarchy in a way that will not offend or upset white people. That's what the inclusion of Jane Elliott feels like to me in this uh, in this text. Uh, I just want to make sure I get in. The issue of caste was, to my mind, the basis of every other ism. What other isms are you talking about? Let's see. We had broken from the matrix. I don't even know what that means. Transcend race broken. see, that's what I mean. She just has a lot of, she didn't have all these goofy metaphors in the warmth of other sons. Uh, I might be incorrect, but we read that from cover to cover. She didn't have all these goofy metaphors. It was a lot of history data. Uh, just evidence of white terrorism. It wasn't this flowery rhetoric. That means nothing. It is not even logic based, uh, but we had broken from the matrix. We're convinced that we could see what others could not and that others could see it, too, if they awaken from their slumber. And we come back to the same metaphor. We need to get woke. Tanahasi Coast has that all throughout between the world and me, the dreamers. That's how he talks about racists. So is Dylan Roof. He's asleep. That's the problem. He's in a dream. And in that dream, he goes to shoot up a church full of non-black people, full of non-black folks. That's his dream. That's what I mean. All of that is a totally inaccurate. And again, it's passive to just say that the problem is that racists are sleeping. They're in a slumber. They're not awake. They're not woke. They are not aware. They don't understand. All of that is totally false. It's so common to present. That's why you have 
tons, years of guests who come on this program. Who's more confused about white people? Oh, who's more confused about racism? Oh, white people, definitely. definitely. Oh, man, we white folks, we just don't have a clue. We just need to wake up and get our act together. Yeah. Uh, and it's just going to he had defied his case from on high and I from below we had met at this moment in London at our own Maginot line of equality I don't know what that means standing on different sides of the same quest to understand the forces that had sought to define us but had failed yeah yeah uh, any other folks have comments that they wanted to get in before we wrap up? Assume folks are good. Didn't get anything. Grant will be all set for next week. Like, uh, <laughs> I can only say white people. They do publish a lot of books during election season. And this here book, Cased, sometimes pronounced cast, right in line with election season. I think there will probably be more parallels as we continue. Uh, but we'll see where it goes next week. Uh, if computer is, well, actually, even if the computer should explode, I think we still will be able to do workplace racism. So we should be here uh, tomorrow. Uh, looking forward, uh, neutralizing workplace racism, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we will review what has gone down the last seven days or so. Uh, people trying, man, oh man, people have been asking about workplace safety with the Rona. And then President Trump gets the virus. And that is like the main talking point of the week on so many outlets. What is the safety protocol? What are the safety protocols at the white house and how many people have been tested? And have you been wearing masks? Have you been distancing? And man, what a year we will check in tomorrow for workplace racism, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific and compensatory call in Saturday, 9 PM Eastern, 6 PM Pacific. Uh, stay as safe as possible. Much obliged to the folks who supported uh, trying to get this new computer uh, so I don't have any more crazy computer problems and we can broadcast uh, hopefully without too many interruptions. Uh, but much obliged to the folks who have assisted. Again, hoping the cows is worthy of your time and energy. Given what we heard this week, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy talked about how they would use food or withhold food to keep uh, non-white people lower cased uh, weak Edward Baptist talked about how they would use alcohol as well so you can't really you know plot your escape if you're a little tipsy can't walk straight that type of thing sobriety would be best additionally probably still be best not to do too much going out uh, for many many reasons uh, but if we got to go out, something serious, something essential, we are super, super alert. If it looks like a white person or a non-white person is being loud, hostile, no verbal confrontations, we are out of there. Uh, if you need to call enforcement officials, do that as you exit. But it's no saving face. Uh, it's no, you know, you're not going to talk to me. Nah, nah, nah. 
person could be armed. We should all be thinking that this here white fella, white woman, white child, whatever it is, they could be armed. I am not ready to die. That was not a part of my plan for the day. This is no longer safe. I'm going to get out of here pronto. That should be logical thinking for the rest of this year on the plantation, anywhere in the world, especially in the U.S. because we got lots and lots of armed white people here. So we are sober, buckled if we're going out, super alert if we're in a vehicle. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, we need all of our attention so we can be alert to what's happening around us. And we are trying as best we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, no name calling. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Help us demonstrate maximum black self-respect every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.